the boards from Linda. Brown ahead for Murray. Murray going in. He scores! It is June 26, 2012. We are coming to you live from Buffalo, New York. And by live, of course, I mean on tape. My name is Steve Bennett, <laughs> host of the Sportscasters with my co-host, Don Ross. What's up, Don? Hey, how's it going? It is Season 2, Episode 25. And for the first time in the history of the Sportscasters, we can say that LeBron James is an NBA champion. Sure is, yeah. What would you think of the uh, end of the finals? I, I got to say this. I am really surprised, especially the way Game One played out. That it was a short. It didn't series. get back to Oklahoma City for at least one game. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I want to say they kind of wilted a little bit, but after Game Three, it wasn't really close. Yeah, you know, it seemed like in the beginning of the series, it was really high level basketball that was that was coming down to like a few plays, and I think that maybe it was underestimated the experience level of the Heat at that big of a stage, having just been in the finals before, having guys like Wade who had won NBA championships, having guys like Battier who's won NCAA championships on the team. I think that was a little underrated, and I think when it got really, really, as the series progressed and a couple of things hadn't gone the way of Oklahoma City, I think the Heat kind of took over. And you know what? Maybe it was just their year. Yeah, kind of. It kind of seemed that way. Yeah, I heard a lot on shows like uh, PTI and uh, shows like uh, what's the one with around the, the horn? Around the horn about how maybe that's what Oklahoma City needs to come back and win next year as a loss this year, just to gain that experience. And it seems like Oklahoma State has kind of moved up a level each year. You know, like they didn't make the playoffs Westbrook's for or uh, Durant's first year. They got Westbrook. Then the next year they made the playoffs and the next year Western Conference Finals and then this year the NBA championship. So they'll have their day in the sun, I'm sure, but LeBron is a champion and we're gonna talk to Jeff Passan, our first guest today, who's actually from Cleveland, Ohio. We'll get his perspective on what it's like to be from Cleveland and now have LeBron as a champion. Because we know how things kind of I'm sure went with, with them breaking up. No, he's he's not completely <laughs> pumped. I'll give you that kind of uh kind of you know little teaser there. teaser there yeah. but um this is uh season two episode 25 last week was season two episode 24 we had alan shipnook joe lemire and ed sherman on the podcast I want to thank them all for being on you can find that at our website www.sports-casters.com uh we got a lot to do today like i said jeff passens on the program from yahoo sports our very first guest to ever appear on the sportscasters back for his third appearance also a really uh special and unique thing which i gotta think a listener clay parker we've mentioned him on the show before i think we plugged an essay or something he had published for him one time but he's a big fan of the show and he emailed me and said that he had some connections with some people at the u.s olympic trials and it turned out that connection was otto bolden who is the color commentary for all the track and field events and will be at the olympics as well and atto is gonna or atto is gonna join us to talk about his experience in winning olympic gold 
uh, talk about track and field, talk about Usain Bolt, all that great stuff. Talk about the potential runoff in the ladies 100 meter. We have a a third place tie. So we're going to get into some track and field with a really special guy. First Olympic champion, I think, to ever be on the show. Right? Yeah, that has to be right. Has to be. Uh, And also, Rob Mish is going to join us to talk about his book, The Last Natural. And um, we're going to update the book club. We're going to do round two of the fantasy football mock drafts. And we're going to get back to normal with pick four today. And we're going to talk about our success pick four last week. And I've been debating whether or not we set the bar too low, but I don't think so. I just think we nailed it. Yeah. But we'll talk about that later. Before we can get to any of that, Jeff Passan, Otto Bolden, and Rob Meesh, we got to do three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. Well, the history of the sportscasters is somewhat linked to this very first story, which broke. Just before we started rolling tape today, I said before our very first guest on the podcast was Jeff Passan, who is a co-author of a book called Death to the BCS, and our very first podcast, which featured an interview with Jeff, was the day after the national championship game that Cam Newton won with Auburn over Oregon was played. We had uh, Jeff on to talk about the Death to the BCS a few times, and Jeff is going to join us now officially with the BCS dead was announced earlier today on Tuesday that come 24, the 2014 season, there will be a 14 college playoff uh, to, to settle the national championship. This is how it's going to work. There'll be two national semifinals, which will be played on a rotating basis in six different bowl sites. Uh, the games will be played on December 31st and January 1st. Uh, they'll rotate, excuse me, four sites, uh, the Rose, the Orange, the Fiesta, and the Sugar. So every year, two of those bowls will be national semifinals, and it'll rotate. Then they'll play a national championship game the following week, which will be bid out like the Super Bowl is. Okay. So it will be at a different site each year. I know Jerry Jones has talked about wanting to have it in Dallas every year in his palace. I'm sure yeah. that won't happen, but I'm sure they'll they'll get one, maybe the first one. The first national championship game is set for Monday, uh, January 12, 2015. So the start of the 2014 season, obviously January will be 2015. So still two more years of the BCS, but that's it. Why? Now, is there a because of the contracts. Oh, okay. Uh, they have contracts with the BCS for two more years. There's talk that uh, the TV rights for this is, are going to be as much as $5 billion. Wow. It's a 10-year uh, or a 12-year agreement. So the television partner will have uh, 12 years. Uh, what else can I say about it? Oh, you said gonna January be- tw- January January 12, 2015 is the, f- is the first national championship My game. question was going to be, when do they typically do it? Around that time anyway, right? So it's still going to have that stupid layover? For well, remember, the semifinals are on December 31st and 1st. 
Okay, so it's two weeks probably so between probably the end two of the weeks and, and then two, two weeks. weeks. Okay, yeah. that's not too bad. So it's not too bad. Uh, there's going to be a football committee will be created to select the field. The criteria they'll consider is one loss record, strength of schedule, head to head results, and whether a team is a conference champion. What they did, which is really good, is they didn't only limit it to conference champions. Okay, you know if they would have done that, that means last year's national champion Alabama wouldn't have been eligible for the tournament. Okay, if it had had taken place last year. So to recap, the BCS is dead after two more seasons. National semifinals, two of them will be played on December 31st and 1st at two of the four BCS sites, Rose, Orange, Fiesta, and Sugar. It's a 12-year deal. First national championship game will be played January 12, 2015. That's going to be at a separate site. It's not going to be considered a bowl game. So, so is that it? You think? Do you think that makes guys like Jeff Pass and Mark Cuban happy, or would they like it expanded a little bit further? I think that they're going to have to deal with it until twenty fifteen, well, twenty twenty five. Sure. I don't think we're going to have a book called "Death to the Four Team Playoff" anytime soon. Do you think it's possible with a four team playoff, you end up finding a real champion more often than say like the NHL or the NFL does, where the best team probably well, it would be it's knockout football, right? Right. You know what I mean? I mean, that's a more common soccer term, but any tournament they create is going to be knockout football. Right. And when you play knockout football, you can have a 9-7 and seven Giants team sure. run the table. I think with it being four teams, I think for the most part, they'll get the four best teams in the nation in this. It'll be interesting to see. Right. Like, But, I mean, it'd be interesting to see, like, some years maybe there's one team that has an argument. I mean, last year probably the four teams would have been Alabama, LSU, Stanford, and Oklahoma State. What was the year I watched it here? That was two years ago, I believe. Who were those two teams? Because there was three teams that year that had a legit argument, maybe like the third team that didn't get to play in it. So my question would be, what if there's a huge drop-off at that fourth team and that fourth team ends up winning? Then, I mean, maybe the BCS is the better system. But, I mean, this is exciting. I'd rather see a playoff any day. Yeah, absolutely. So, And I saw, <laughs> so I think it was Jeff Passan tweeted, so in the uh, presidency of Obama, he's killed Bin Laden and killed the BCS. I think that was I saw. I think that was uh, Wyshynski or no, uh, our other boy, AccuScore Zach. Oh, was it Zach who Facebook, said that? Okay, yeah. okay. So yeah, but that's it for the BCS, and we're going to talk more cool. about this with Jeff Passan after three things. It's about time. My first thing, um, not that I knew anything about this or knew it was going on, but I would feel bad if I didn't. Congratulate the Arizona Wildcats for defeating South Carolina to win the College World Series. And it's an accomplishment in that, hey, I mean, any championship's an accomplishment. 10-0, right? Uh, they swept? Yeah, they won 10-0 in the tournament. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that's impressive. South Carolina was looking like something of a dynasty leading two into year, this two season. Two-times champions. Two in a row. Yep. This marks Arizona's first championship since 1986 and their fourth overall, so... Wildcats, congratulations. What do you think of the College World Series as an event? Is that on your sports calendar no, at all? it's not no. at all. No, I didn't see any of it. You know, I mean, for some stupid reason, I'm more likely to watch softball. It just seems like that. I think it's the aluminum bats. I really do. It's a turnoff to me. Yeah, I guess that's in softball, though. Too. I mean, I don't really watch, like look for either, I suppose, but somehow I always end up watching like softball. In the- I watched a lot of the game last night because I wanted to see – uh, Alabama or excuse me, South Carolina had their their stud on the mound or okay, you know their ace, and I watched him kind of breeze through the first three innings, and then Arizona kind of scratched in a run 
on a leadoff double and then a bunt and then a sack, sack yeah. fly. They kind of manufactured a run to get to him that way. And then I came back to it, and South Carolina had the bases loaded with one out, down 4-1 to one in the ninth. Oh, really? And, uh, yeah, I love to see a championship given out. You know, I love to see that last out sure. and see the pile and see the national championship trophy and all that. So congratulations to the Arizona Wildcats, which is where uh, my cousin, my second cousin, my mom's cousin's son, played D1 baseball at Arizona in the late 1990s. He actually was in like uh, yeah, he was in the Double A Saint Louis, something like that. Saint Louis organization when he turned pro, played in the New York Penn League. I saw his first career pro victory in Batavia. Okay, but he kind of he played two or three years in the minors and then went on and baseball. <clears throat> baseball is crazy, the craziest sport as far as like the draft goes. I think like you, we watched just watched the hockey draft this past weekend, and you'll see guys typically like defensemen and goalies take a long time to develop. So you might draft a guy. You may not see him for three, four, or five years. Baseball, I mean, they've got to go. They get drafted. How many people do they draft? They draft everywhere. a lot of rounds, and it's not uncommon to be drafted two or three times in baseball. Yeah, they're everywhere. Those you know, players are in single A, double A, or college, college. high school. Right, yeah, it's everywhere. Definitely not an exact science there at all. Uh, my number two thing today is one of uh, the most exciting three things I've ever had. My all-time favorite athlete Pavel Bure inducted into the NHL Hall of Fame today, finally, after about a four-year wait or so since he's been eligible. Uh, he will be joined by Joe Sackick, one of the most, certainly one of the most deserving Hall of Famers sure. that will be in the building. Uh, Adam Oates, who was also named coach of the Capitals today. Great yeah, day for him. Yep. And Matt Sundin. Uh, let's see. Brandon Shanahan was a guy who I think a lot of people thought would was a no brainer. Would yeah. be a no brainer. He didn't make it today, which I'm fine with. He can wait a year. Uh, Jeremy Roenick, Curtis Joseph, Eric Lindros, Dave Anderchuk, Phil Housley, all other guys who didn't make it. Look at my, when Michael Farber was on this show. I I went at him hard about why Bray wasn't in. Uh, stated the case then. You can go to the archives and find an interview with Michael Farber and. It's been long overdue. I think the guy look at the guy was scoring sixty goals when no one else was scoring forty. Right. What do you it's, think his problem was? Not long enough or uh, too many injuries, being Russian or? I think is part of it. Uh being his career short, cut short of injuries. Uh two of the guys that he most famously feuded with in the NFL or in the NHL, uh Pat Burns or not Pat Burns, um Brian Burke and uh someone else were on the committee. I don't think that they, you know, guys that he feuded with in Vancouver. Um, but he's in, so that's that. So, any, any surprise that Adam Oates made it so easily? Or I, I mean, I shouldn't say so easily. I don't know how many times. No, he had eligible. a few years. He, he he's been retired longer than Bure, so he had he had oh, a okay. long wait. But I mean, I guess any surprise that he made it over the guys. He made it over. I should have said maybe. Guys yeah, like Lindros. Like yeah, I'm surprised. Lindros is the only MVP winner in the modern era who's not in the Hall of Fame. My thing That's with, eligible. I'm not sure if we've talked about this with the hockey. No, I think it's usually been about the football Hall of Fame. But I want Hall of Famers to, at some point, be able, like just have been a dominant player. And that was Eric Lindros. That was uh, Burre. Even Matt Sundin, to some extent, was that. I don't I don't know if I've ever seen Oates as that. Maybe I'm too young. I think the thing about Oates is he's an assist guy. Yeah. You know, he's got over, over, a, thousand over a thousand assists. Yep. I mean, so sometimes when you're a guy who's just – Passing the puck off to guys like Brett Hall, 
Yeah, he's a better than point per game guy too. So I mean, he definitely deserves it. I guess I was just surprised when I heard his name and not Shanahan's and not. Yeah, I'm I'm surprised Lindros is having a hard time to get in with him being Canadian. You know, and do you think Dave Andrzejczyk ever makes it? I I think he, I think it's getting tougher and tougher with. I mean, his thing is he's one of the few guys that. <clears throat> He's one of the few guys that has a record over Wayne Gretzky, and that's power play goals. Right. So he's kind of... I think he deserves to be in the Hockey Hall of Fame. He's almost a little bit of a specialist. Like he this was is, a bit of a compiler. He played a long yeah, time he was like to get those numbers. He was like 40 when he won his cup, maybe? Yeah, he he, I mean, he played... Let's see, I actually have it here in front of me. He played... His rookie year was 1982-83. played 43 games for the Sabres. And his last year, his cup year, was 05. Or... He played one year after the strike or lockout, oh five, oh six. Okay, so he played a long time, but yeah. I mean, uh, he's got thirteen thirty eight, or yeah, thirteen thirty eight is his point total. Six hundred and forty goals. Six hundred and forty goals seems like you should be in the Hall of Fame to me. Yeah, it used to be. I think that five hundred was like you're in, but now there's guys that are struggling. So. But congrats to Bray. It's a happy day for me. I'm really pumped that he's in, and I want to go. And also we should mention, and we mentioned this on a, a previous show, but also going in with these guys are Roy McGregor, who's been on the podcast before. His book, Wayne Gretzky's Ghost, was a book called Book of the Month, and also Rick Jenneret, longtime yeah. voice of the Sabres. So be a great, great year for the Hall of Fame if you're me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, my second thing is not typical in our three things – uh, roster here because it's not really new, but it's something that's new to me, so I figured I would throw it in because I thought it was cool. Uh, anyone who hasn't heard of it, there's a website out there called thedanplan.com. And what this plan is, uh, is talent has little to do with success, is the theory. According to research conducted by Dr. K. Anders Erickson, a professor of psychology at Florida State, I think he did this test or study at something like 1993 or it was a while ago, but his theory is that it's less to do with natural born talent and more to do with practice. And he's discovered that he thinks in order to excel in a field, you need roughly $10,000 of quote, stretching yourself beyond what you can currently do. He calls it deliberate practice. Um, so this Dan decided that he wanted to try this theory out, which is kind of crazy, but, uh, at a th- he was a 30-year-old commercial photographer. He had no previous athletic experience, and he had never played a full 18 holes of golf, and it had only been to a driving range a handful of times. This guy sounds like me. Um, he was not even sure when he started if he was a left- or right-handed golfer. Hmm. So he, his goal is to practice for 10,000 hours and to hopefully make the amateur circuit and then hopefully make get a PGA Tour card. Right, I think there's no chance at this. Right now, he's completed... Almost 3,000 hours. He's got 7,000 hours left. He's got 7,000 hours left. And right now he's a, a 7.4 handicap. So he's got a ways to go still. So if he can pull this off, essentially he proves that talent means nothing. It's all about practice. If he doesn't pull it off, it proves that despite practice, you still need talent. Sure. Is that yeah, basically I mean, what we got this down to? Yeah, it's a weird way to define talent, too, because like, I don't think there's a lot of... I mean, your brother would be called a talented hockey player, but if he had never practiced in his life, he, you know what I mean? He wouldn't be he wouldn't be good. He well, would, yeah, I mean, I think so much... Like, that's a great point, because, I mean, with him, he was a AAA player from the start, so 
he didn't have to build his way to AAA player, but he was not always a lock to be a Division One college hockey player. Right. You know what I mean? I think a lot of that was making the prep team when he did as a sophomore and then having the three years of prep experience in the USHL got him to where he is. Townsend, it's an interesting term. Like, what does that mean? Is it just something naturally? And you, my brother, his coach has always said he was a natural skater. But he never... He didn't have the skill that some other people have. As he far has, as like hands he had the heart. He, he, like you said, skating. Yeah, but he didn't have the natural skill. I so guess. right. So I guess he would be someone that you'd have to teach the talent to. I, I, I don't, it's an interesting concept, and I, I discovered it today. I mean, I discovered it. A lot of people have seen it. It's been in the press a few times, but it was new to me today. So check it out, thedamplan.com. I'll be kind of keeping tabs on this guy as he gets down to his uh, ten thousandth hour. Of practice, I believe he ends sometime in like 2015 or something like that at 30 hours a week. So it's an interesting concept and it's cool because I'm 31 now and that's probably about how old he is now because he started at 30. So for all those people out there that think they couldn't, <laughs> that they're too old to start something, he's going to try to prove that maybe it's not true. Good luck, Dan. All right, my third thing, someone who was certainly born with a lot of talent is Venus Williams. Uh, but I guess she's at a crossroads right now. Uh, she is a five-time Wimbledon champion who lost in the opening round at Wimbledon for the first time since she made her debut at the tournament. She lost in uh, straight sets to an Australian player, 6-2, 6-3. Uh, she's had a tough year. She's been struggling with uh, some kind of disease that creates fatigue. Uh, she is going to play doubles with her sister. Um, Venus is the younger, correct? No. Oh, Serena's the younger. Serena's okay. the younger. Venus is the older. Oh, okay. She's in her 30s. 32 years old, I believe. Okay, Serena's 30. 32 years old, I think, is ancient for a tennis player. Yeah. Steffi Graf won her last uh, major championship at 30. So, for Venus, it could be over in terms of winning yeah. these major tournaments. But that doesn't mean that she didn't have an no, unbelievable yeah. Hall of Fame tennis career, one of the all-time greats. Really, she was dominant until her sister started challenging her, right? I mean... Yeah, I think the, both of them, when they were in their primes, were, were, I think they could. the only one that could beat the other one was the other Each one. Each other, right. right. Uh, but her goal is to make the Olympics. She wants to win one more uh, medal for her country or represent her country one more time. So I wish her the best in that, but... Does she have a lot of competition on the U.S. side, women? Uh, that's a that's a good question. I, I don't know. I mean, most of the women winning are Russians, one. and I don't know how big the team is. Right. So that's a hard question for me to answer. But that's something to keep an eye on as we get closer and closer to the Olympics, and she'll have a chance to avenge this loss if she does make the Olympics. Because, like we were told on this podcast by John Wertheim, the tennis Olympics are being played at Wimbledon. Oh, okay. So. All right. My last thing this week is NHL free agency. Uh, we're not really going to have another chance to touch on this in this podcast because we're full of other stuff, but it's always a fun day. It's oddly Sunday. On a Sunday mm-hmm. starting at You noon. know the last time it was a Sunday? Was it? Uh, I'm, I think I was in my car when. 2007. When the Sabres the darkest lost. darkest day in Sabres history. Yep. So hopefully they can make some magic happen this year. I, I'm not sure. There's just It's a really slim market. Thin, thin class especially at the top yeah it's, there's uh zach parise and ryan Suter would be the big names uh alex semen is a name out there who gets a lot of goals and whatever he's a sniper but this year's mike richards 
or excuse me, this year is Brad Richards is Zach, Zach Parise. Parise. Yeah, and he, I mean, he's probably better than and he's younger than yeah. Brad Richards. So, I mean, he, he is a prize for sure. I would love to have Zach Parise on my team. but I think the problem for really any team is that there's going to be a lot of teams with money, like the Penguins, who traded Jordan Stahl to Carolina on draft day, which is a couple of days ago, and his wedding day. Yeah. Uh, they're going to have money, but are they going to have enough money to get Parise to choose them over, let's say, Minnesota, Detroit. who has money, Detroit and that's where he's from. Detroit, that's hockey town. Uh, I assume Buffalo is going to make phone calls. You know who's a weird team? Uh, when free agency rolls around, I always like to look at NHL numbers or CapGeek.com. CapGeek is good, yeah. NHL numbers has Nashville having four players under contract next year. And they currently have something like $35 million of free salary. So wow. the fact that they haven't signed Ryan Suter or Shea Weber. I mean, to skip ahead, one of my my bold prediction was going to be Nashville maintains Suter and Weber because they just have so much money. But my thought is if I crossed that off because I was thinking they had this money. If they couldn't get it done yet, then there must be something that these guys don't want about Nashville. Nashville's a ton, ton of money. Yeah, I mean, I'm just looking at Cap Geek right now, and there's a bunch of teams with over $20 million to spend. Yeah, it's wild. And there's just, unfortunately, there's not enough teams. One place we can cross off is Boston. They only have $3 million of cap space right now. So he's not going there unless they're going to play some really special tricks. No, and as a Sabres fan, like, it's nice to have Terry Pagula there, and I would not count them out of anybody, but they would have to do some magic to get Parise. I, I had, it's just not their year. They have $11 million right now free. Yeah. So, but, I mean, but they need to sign Tyler Ennis. They're not going to let him walk. Right. They only have 19 rostered players. Yeah. So, I mean, they got some work to do. It's probably not going to happen. No, I'm. Uh, the Rangers have $21 million. So, I mean, that's. He, he, said, he said he's not he going to go, go there. there. Yeah, but yeah. I don't know. Uh, what'll be interesting, too, is. Uh, a lot of rumors about Rick Nash, Bobby Ryan, Roberto Luongo. So the trade market, the trade for trades, correct? Right. So that'll be fun. We've already seen the Jordan Stahl trade and James Van Riemsdyk. What happened there? You know, I, I read a really great article on Puck Daddy about who's ever going to want to sign a long-term deal with the Flyers ever again. I mean, <laughs> they've pulled the plug on Richards. They've pulled the plug on Carter. They've now pulled the plug on. Van Riemsdyk, and there was one other one too. Who's the other guy that they basically bailed on? The you know that they had seemed to commit dollars and years to and bailed on. I I think Happy Feet. I mean, yeah. I mean, the year two, way two, two years back when the Sabers were in the playoffs, James Van Riemsdyk had a really nice. Really he was nice a beast playoff. in that series. Yeah. I mean, I mean, he struggled with injuries. I'm I was really surprised that they for Shen. A guy that's kind of probably been an underachiever. If they can have that back, I think the Maple Leafs take Tyler Myers in that spot. Right. The Maple Leafs are very happy to get Van Riemsdyk, sure. though. I mean, yeah. unfortunately, not born in Ontario. So The NHL draft also happened this past weekend. Uh, not a lot to say about that because we've been talking about guys that you probably wouldn't see this. Right. The sure anyway, nail, Yakupov, the number one pick. Yeah, he went, went first to overall. Edmonton. Some rumors that... Burray-like, uh, apparently. Some rumors that... The Islanders would have given up their entire draft, yeah, to get Ryan to move Murray, up to get Ryan Murray, which is odd because people don't really. Have now him on this a... podcast last week, it was either on the air, or off the air. You mentioned, I think it was on the air. You mentioned that your bold prediction, if we didn't do what we did, was going to be that the Sabers weren't going to use all their picks. And I said the best 
case scenario for the Sabres would be if the second Russian was available when they picked 12th, and he was available, yeah. and they did take him. Uh, so a great draft for the Sabres, I thought. I love the, their trade. They moved up to take a kid from the USHL. It's nice Laffy and kid, I thought they did great in the first round. It's nice when you're listening to, as a Sabres fan, or a fan of a team that makes a trade, and you hear the announcers on the on the telecast immediately question what the other team was doing. Pierre Maguire beat up Calgary. He's like, what they are they took, doing? And Calgary moved back because the kid they wanted, the kid they ended up taking, went to Stansted, which I know of Stansted because Anthony's high school, St. Francis played them. That's about a third-tier high school hockey team in Quebec. Right. He had monster numbers there or something like that, but still, it's it's very odd. to. I mean, if it's weird to take a kid. They must have seen something in him because – we talk about our friends sometimes, but our, your buddy Vinny went to Canisius, put up monster, monster numbers at Canisius, and that at least is a D1 school. This isn't... Stansted's way below that. That's what I mean. I bet Stansted has two D1 players on their team a year, maybe. So, so what did they... I have no I, idea how that happened. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, one, I know he's got bloodlines. Okay. You know, he has a grandpa or a uncle or nephew playing in the league at some point. But people are killing Calgary for the pick. Yeah, and they traded. I haven't seen anyone give Calgary above a C plus in a grade, and they're on every loser list and winner losers. So we'll we'll see. It's way early. Yeah, we'll see what happens, but uh, definitely questionable. And I guess it worked for the Sabers. All right, so we're gonna take a break. We're gonna come back with Jeff Passan. We're gonna do round two of our fantasy football mock draft version two point oh. We're going to talk to Atto Bolden about the U.S. Olympic trials in track and field. We're going to update the book club, and we're going to close off the last, the last natural by Rob Mish and then pick four. So busy show the rest of the way. Let's take a break, and we will be right back with Jeff Passan, the author of Death to the BCS. Our next guest is from Cleveland, Ohio, and is a graduate of Syracuse University. At Syracuse, he wrote for the school's paper, The Daily Orange. After graduation, he went west to cover the Fresno State basketball team for the Fresno Bee. In 2004, he began covering baseball for the Kansas City Star before moving to Yahoo in 2006. His work has been honored with multiple Associated Press Sports Editor Awards and has been recognized by the Best American Sports Writing Anthology. Today, he is the lead baseball columnist for Yahoo Sports and the co-author of the critically acclaimed book, Death to the BCS. He was the first guest ever to appear on the Sportscasters, and he's making his third appearance tonight. A warm podcast. Welcome to the great Jeff Passing. What's up, Jeff? I think you read that from Wikipedia, Steve, didn't you? <laughs> uh, well, you know, my own words, you know, it's kind of like, uh, <laughs> you know, take, you this, doing, take this line here, take this line. I'm doing really good. I'm really, we're really excited to have you on, as always. A bunch of different things I want to ask you about. Let's start with this. I mentioned in there you're from Cleveland, Ohio. What was your reaction to LeBron getting his first championship? You know, a little bittersweet. I mean, I'd have liked to see it happen in Cleveland because, you know, Cleveland is just such a tortured sports town. You know what it's like. I mean, yep. Cleveland and Buffalo are like hand-in-hand hand for mm-hmm. most tortured sports town, and uh, it could have happened in Cleveland, and frankly, it probably should have happened in Cleveland, but it didn't. And look, you can't deny the guy's game. I mean, he's incredible. He's one of the best players ever to play basketball, and what he did throughout this playoff run was 
uh, it was just mesmerizing. It was a pleasure to see as a basketball fan. So, you know, I, I'd like to think that uh, I can look past my own feelings and appreciate what LeBron James does, and uh, it was pretty awesome. And, uh, you know, he earned it. Simple as that. You know, you mentioned how Cleveland and Buffalo were very similar cities. We're only a couple hours apart. Uh, I mean, I've, I I go to Cleveland if there's a concert there that I want to see. You know, it's it's that easy to, to get back and forth. You know, go to an Indians game. It's like nothing. And, I, you know, I think a little bit about Patrick Kane, who's from Buffalo and won a Stanley Cup in Chicago, and how we kind of celebrated that. Of course, he never played for the Sabres, took us to a Stanley Cup, and then left us at the altar take his talents to South Beach. You know, LeBron is still, you know, from Akron, Ohio. Is there still some level of civic pride there to know that a guy who who lives so close to where you grew up is the best basketball player in the world? Yeah, I mean, I saw LeBron in high school before he was LeBron, and he was an absolute monster back then, too. And, uh, you know, seeing him grow to to where he has at this point, he's, he's just unlike anyone we've seen. You know, he's power forward size, but he has the skills of point guard. And, you know, you can say Magic Johnson was like that, but I think LeBron's an even more aggressive player than Magic was. And anytime you can see a -a one-of-a-kind in sports, whether it's basketball, baseball, football, hockey, soccer, you know, any any sport there is, I think as a fan you have to appreciate greatness. And, you know, rather than let the personal feelings, what they are, get in the way, I try and appreciate what LeBron does. And, pretty easy to do so when uh, he goes out and he's not, I'm not going to say single-handedly wins a championship, but, uh, you know, Dwayne Wade wasn't Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh wasn't Chris Bosh. And uh, when, when you have a guy like James doing what he did, it's awesome to watch. Obviously, LeBron is the best athlete from Cleveland. Who's the second best? From Cleveland? Yeah. Like, like or, or to play in Cleveland, because I think... Right, Jim Brown, is, right, would be to play in Cleveland, right? But it, well, to play in Cleveland, I think you can make an argument Jim Brown's better right, than LeBron James. Right. No, but I, I meant Cleveland. I meant from there, yeah. Oh God, it's not like we're a repository of great athletes by any means. I, you know, I, I off the top of my head, I, I don't know yeah. who else would be in that in that running. I think LeBron's a clear number one, though, and hey, Cleveland and Akron, you know. They're about 30 miles apart, so I think Akron's gonna gonna claim LeBron James <laughs> more than Cleveland has a right, right to. Right, that's true. Uh, you know, if, if somebody's from Western New York, it's not like it's. You no, know, I guess Syracuse is a couple hours away, but uh, you know, if someone's from uh, Niagara Falls, uh, you know, from, I think would be a good. Yeah, comparison. exactly. You're yeah. probably gonna claim a guy from Niagara Falls, so uh, we'll we'll take LeBron and uh, just move on with it because it's not like we have a, a whole lot more with our our history of athletics. Right. All right. Moving on. Uh, the first time you were on this show, it was to uh, talk about your book, Death of the BCS, and you were very kind to mail us an autographed copy of that, which we mailed off to a very excited listener, by the way. We want to thank you very much for that. And um, the the BCS is essentially dead, right? I mean, uh, they got a couple, couple of years of games left, or the contract's going to run out, but uh, college football is seemingly settled on some level of a playoff, some kind of four-team format. Uh, being the guy who wrote to the death of the BCS, or one of the three guys who wrote that book, how do you kind of feel about the turn that college football has taken in the last couple of weeks here? It's going in the right direction, certainly. Uh, I'm not going to say things are solved at this point, because they're not. There are still problems in college football, and 
Uh, if they end up going to a, a four-team playoff format with those four teams coming from uh, conference champions, I'm not going to say it's a step backward, but, uh, you know, we're sort of riding in neutral at that point. The whole point of this book was to show how an equitable playoff that has representation from across the college football landscape is exactly what this sport needs. And, you know, I, at this point, I don't know if that's what we're going to get. Uh, eventually, that will be the case. Eventually, once this playoff succeeds, they are going to expand it to eight teams. And right. I think once that happens, it's going to be a whole lot better than this first incarnation. That being said, if Mike Sly from the SEC can somehow convince his fellow conference commissioners that it would be a good idea to have the best teams as opposed to four conference champions being in this, then that'll open up for you know, the Boise states of the world. And that'll make sure we have, in most years, a couple teams from the SEC, which is the dominant college football conference right now. And, and you know, it's weird to think... But if they go with conference champions, all of a sudden last year's champion, Alabama, wouldn't even be in the four-team playoff. Right. And the, the point is not to, to get somebody from everywhere into this thing. The point is to get the best teams in facing other teams and, and the ones who are in lesser conferences, for example, if they go undefeated, have a, uh, have a chance at this. So we're not there yet. Uh, it's going to be a while, I think, till we get there, but... Uh, you know, next decade, I'm hopeful, uh, is when we'll see what finally college football should have and should be. So it sounds like you're hoping that they go with some kind of a committee model. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, 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 you know, a committee is not ideal by any means, but it's, uh, it's definitely better than, uh, than the alternatives. And, you know, the, the, the point of this, look, a committee is always going to be fallible, but I think every year when you look at the NCAA basketball tournament, you can say that they did a pretty good job, and that's picking 65 teams, or right. 60, uh, 68 teams, I guess. With, uh, with four teams, it's pretty tough to screw up. And, uh, you know, you can make the argument if uh, you're the, the fifth team and the team that had a chance to get in, you probably shouldn't have lost the game. And chances are you're not going to have more than four top-notch, top-level undefeated teams by the end of the season. And, hey, if you win your games, you're in. Yeah, and you know you might agree or disagree with this, but like if you just look at last year's college basketball tournament, there was a couple of complaints from a couple of teams, but we're talking about like the thirty-fifth at-large team. But yet yep. the committee was able to tell us, well, we went with strength of schedule as our kind of main criteria, and they were able to kind of state that case, and and we've seen a, a consistency based on that, and that's really all you can ask for. And I can't think of anything cooler than waking up on a, a Monday morning and being able to debate, you know, if the committee got these four teams right, and, you know, if... Or maybe that's not what I mean. I think it would be really cool to be able to say, well, yeah, it was Alabama over... Oklahoma, but they use this reason, and I like that reason, and that makes sense, so let's go with this then. Yeah, and, you know, if they have well-drawn-out rationale behind the choices, I think that's all college football fans want. I mean, the problem with the computer systems right now is, number one, strength of schedule isn't involved, and or rather, a margin of victory isn't involved. And when you take out something as telling as how much you beat another team by, you know, a 24 to 23 win should not be the same as a 49 to nothing win. And, and for them to, to sit there and say that we're not doing this because we don't want to encourage bad sportsmanship, well, 
if that's the case, then, uh, you know, do something very simple. Uh, any victory that's more than 35 points is equivalent to a victory of 35-plus points, and that's the maximum right. you can have. That doesn't encourage extreme blowouts uh, of running up the score on teams. And, uh, hey, it's not like the current system discourages that. I mean, uh, Wisconsin uh, in the past has run up the score big time in Big Ten games because it realizes that the polls that are used right now, voters are going to look much more friendly upon a team that wants 70 than a team that won by seven. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the excuses from the people at the BCS continue to be laughable, uh, but thankfully uh, they're not going to be excuses from people at the BCS anymore because uh, the BCS, uh, as we know it, is just about gone. The sportscasters are here with our very first guest of all time, Jeff Passan, who joined us the day after the national championship game between Auburn and Oregon. So uh, uh, let's move on. Let's talk some baseball. I think, well, let's start here. I think it's been the best baseball season I can remember for action before the All-Star break. There's so many new stars. There's uh, stars we knew that are having great seasons. There's pitching performances that are unbelievable. I mean, it just feels like this season... Really, it seems like ever since day 162 of last season, baseball's really been on an upswing. Yeah, baseball has momentum going its way, and I agree. It's been a fun season so far. You know, whether it's uh, good teams going out and doing what they're supposed to do for the most part, or uh, teams that are surprising, whether it's the Los Angeles Dodgers or the Chicago White Sox or the Baltimore Orioles. You know, there are good races in pretty much every division at this point, and that's all you can ask for. You don't want a team running away with things. That uh, You don't want to run away with things by, uh, you know, the all-star break. And I don't think that that's the case at all. I think that there are going to be some great races. And we just saw Kevin Euclid get traded to the White Sox. And it's going to kick off a, uh, a trade season that has a lot of intrigue. You know, there are new rules in place this year as far as compensation picks go. And it'll be interesting to see how that affects guys like... Cole Hamels or Zach Granke, you know, guys who may have been dealt very quickly and readily in the past, but teams now might prefer to hold on to them and get a draft pick back instead or at least try and negotiate with them during free agency. You know, you're talking to us as you walk down the streets of Chicago and you mentioned... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I almost got run over by a guy on his bike. I don't know if you heard him say, uh, watch out behind. uh, (laughs) Yeah, be careful. That was a harrowing moment. Be careful. I don't don't want to record the death of Jeff Passan here. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Although that probably would help us, but no, 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 be careful. Uh, You mentioned Euclid and the White Sox, and they're doing great first place, which is a surprise. I think probably everyone going into the season expected Detroit to really run away with that division. But I guess what is more interesting maybe is how bad the Cubs are still. I think there was some optimism with uh, Theo Epstein going over there. But is it that we just need to give him more time? Where do you see the Cubs, 24 and 47, essentially the worst team in baseball, uh, with uh, about 100 years of losing behind them already? If you were a Cubs fan, what, or what would you say to Cubs fans right now? Uh, be patient because uh, this ain't getting better anytime soon. And that's, you know, that's the thing I think that when Theo Epstein took over, people needed to understand and probably do understand that 
this is a team that doesn't have a whole lot going on right now. You know, the minor league system is getting better. They went out and uh, signed Jorge Soler, the Cuban kid, for $30 million over the next nine years. And, uh, you know, their number one pick last year, Javier Baez, has a, a lot of potential, could be, a, could be a very good everyday player, whether it's a shortstop or third base. And Albert Almora, the uh, high schooler that they drafted this year, has a chance to be a five-tool star. So, uh, the, you know, the, they're on the upswing, but it's going to take some time. And you don't, you don't turn from a dreadful ball club that doesn't have a whole lot of talent at the major league level uh, into a contender overnight. And I think that Theo Epstein and Jed Hoyer, since they got there, have had, you know, 2015 in mind is right around when they're going to start being true contenders. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, I think that's realistic right now. They just need to have good drafts. They need to make savvy trades, uh, whether it's Ryan Dempster uh, once his shoulder clears up, if his shoulder clears up, and possibly Matt Garza, and who knows, maybe even Starling Castro. They've got some pieces that they could get a lot back for, and, uh, that's all the Cubs can hope to do at this point. You know, if I would have had you on exactly a year ago, I probably could have asked you this same question. I could have said, you know, the Pirates are above 500. They're right around first place. And I guess instead of just asking you about the Pirates, there's a couple of teams that are kind of in the same boat. You mentioned the Orioles having a surprise season. The Mets are only a couple games behind the Nationals, who are probably a little bit ahead of schedule. Um, the Indians from uh, Cleveland there, where you're from. Uh, which of these teams, these kind of surprise teams, do you think can, can stick around for the long haul, and who do you think will kind of drop off? Well, if you're going to put the Nationals in that category, I'm going to take them. I have the Nationals going to the World Series this year, so okay. I feel like that's, that's a little pat on the back pick for me. And uh, the, the big one of the big stories of the second half is going to be exactly how they use Steven Strasburg, you know? Yes. Is this a guy who they are going to limit to 160 to 180 innings this year, or are they going to let him go? And uh, if they let him go and let him pitch, I think the Nationals will win the playoffs, and I think they will be a very, very dangerous team once they get there. Drew Storen's going to be back soon. Bryce Harper is a star. Jason Worth has a chance to come back this year. Uh, Ryan Zimmerman should turn things around. So there's definitely some pieces there that are – uh, very attractive and uh, very good. Uh, that that being said, uh, if Strasburg gets shut down, that changes the Nationals' profile a lot. Uh, Their starting pitching isn't nearly as deep. And uh, among the other teams, I think the AL East eventually is going to get the best of Baltimore. Even though this is a, a much improved Orioles team uh, under Dan Duquette, uh, you know the Indians and the White Sox to me still probably. Uh, are not the favorites in that division. Even with the Euclid edition for the White Sox, I still like Detroit uh, and its potential better. Um, and what was the other team that we were missing there? Uh, the Mets, maybe, in the, the NL East? Yeah, I, I, I still think that the Mets are better, certainly, than, uh, than a lot of people, myself included, thought they were going to be. But that's a meat grinder of a division. The National League East is very good. It's not American League East good, but... Uh, I don't think anyone can argue that it's the second-best division in baseball at this point. And uh, even, even teams like Miami uh, and like Philadelphia that are under 500 right now still have a lot of talent on their roster. And, look, that's what it comes down to. It comes down to talent and how healthy it can stay. And Philadelphia has not stayed healthy at all, whether it's Utley, Howard, uh, Roy Halladay, 
Uh, even Carlos Ruiz on the disabled list right now, but uh, there's enough there, I think, where uh, you know it's going to be interesting to see what the Phillies do, uh, and if they do indeed hold on to Cole Hamels or try and replenish their farm system by dealing him. Do you buy the Pirates at all? No. No. Their, their pitching's better. Right. La- last year, they were pitching really well, and I think it was a lot of smoke and mirrors. Uh, their pitching has definitely improved, but uh, I, I still, you know, I just look at that offense and don't see all that much. And, uh, you know, I'm wondering if the Pirates are a little gun-shy after last year. They went out and got Ryan Ludwig. They got Derek Lee at the trade deadline, and then they absolutely imploded. But uh, with that rotation, Eric Bedard's been uh, good for them. James McDonald has been a revelation. And a bullpen that with Joel Hanrahan and Jason Grilly at the back end looks solid. Uh, you know, the Pirates do have a chance. They just happen to be in the division with Cincinnati and with a, a Cardinals team that has underachieved, but I think is going to improve as the year goes on. That uh, I still think the Pirates are probably the third best team in that division. Uh, one of the great things about Major League Baseball this year has been the emergence of a ton of young stars. Uh, some have done better than others, but it seems like there's a lot of teams in Major League Baseball that are willing to just let their guys play and work it out. We've seen uh, Harper have, you know, some great games and some poor games. Uh, Trout has probably been the best young star this year. Uh, maybe yep. Eric Hosmer has been the one that's maybe struggled the most in, in Kansas City. But it just seems like Major League Baseball, maybe more than any other time that I can remember right now, is just loaded with young talent and guys that are bringing – at least I can't speak for everyone else, but are bringing me to the TV. I want to see guys like Trout and Harper hit and run and McCutcheon and all these great players in baseball. Uh, kind of a golden age for baseball maybe emerging here with all these great young players? I'm not going to go there yet, uh, but it's been nice to watch those guys. And I think the combination of young stars on the offensive side with really good pitching across, across the board makes baseball and the game itself at a really high level right now. And, you know, uh, guys our age who came up during the steroid era and who, uh, you know, were baseball fans when, uh, you know, multiple guys were hitting 50 home runs a year, uh, got weaned on this idea that home runs rule baseball. Well, that's not the case anymore. Pitching rules baseball right now. And as long as that's the case, I think – the purists out there, and I, I consider myself among them, uh, are really going to enjoy and appreciate what's going on out there. You know, somebody wrote after Matt Cain's perfect game that with each perfect game pitched, it, it kind of lessens the accomplishment. I, I don't personally believe that. I mean, to me, as soon as I see on Twitter someone's like through six innings, I'm tra- tracking it on my phone, and as soon as they get to eight, I'm changing the station. I mean... It's still one of the most exciting things in sports. What were your feelings on the increased amount of perfect games and no-hitters and whether or not it diminishes the accomplishment? I'm fine with it. I like it. I mean, to me, getting through 27 hitters without allowing a hit is a tremendous accomplishment, no matter what the era uh, or or the, uh, the, the status of baseball is. Just because offense is down doesn't mean that it's any less of an accomplishment to throw a no-hitter and especially a perfect game. And so I'm totally cool with the, the increase in that. I, I like pitcher stools. I think they're fun to watch. I think they're interesting. I think there's a lot more psychology to it than there is a slugfest. And 
Uh, hey, I'm, I'm all for a no-hitter every time I go to the ballpark. You wrote uh, a really interesting piece recently about the regional sports network and the kind of outdated rules that Major League Baseball has for blockouts and things like that. Can we get another book called Death to the Regional Sports Network, and can you guys kind of clean all that up for us? I don't think the Regional Sport Network is dying anytime soon. There's too much money there to be made. I mean, look, the Los Angeles Dodgers were purchased for over $2 billion in large part because of what they can get in a TV deal. And, uh, you know, as long as franchise values are going up, I mean, the, the Padres are going to be sold probably this week for just about as much as the Chicago Cubs were sold for a few years ago. This is the San Diego Padres, a team that has trouble getting people out to Petco Park, a team that uh, is no good right now and historically uh, haven't won a World Series and, and haven't been that good. And so, uh, the, you know, the idea that, uh, that regional sports networks are going to go away, no, not only are they here to stay, I think there's going to be uh, an increase in them across other sports. You're not going to see it in football necessarily, but uh, the other sports like basketball and hockey that have uh, the potential not to have all their games on national television uh, are going to embrace that, and uh, <laughs> you know we're going to see our cable bills go up because of these regional sports networks. Well, okay, the regional sports networks can stay, but we at least need to work on these blackout rules. I mean, you even mentioned the article. I'm in Buffalo here, and we get Pirates and Indians games blacked out as if like I can just hop in the car on a Tuesday night and, and go buy a ticket or something. Yeah, and, and you know what? I, I, what I don't understand is why baseball has to be so short-sighted about this, why they have to grab the money now rather than grow uh, what should be uh, an enormous, not NFL-level enormous, but an enormous fan base. And I think that young people especially who embrace and appreciate technology and love the fact that they can see on any given night every baseball game that's being played are kind of appalled by a simple fact that because you live somewhere, you're not allowed to watch these games. And, hey, look, if you are getting Indians and Pirates games on TV, in my mind, you're a lot more likely to actually go to one or two or five of those games throughout the season. But until you see the players, until you make those relationships in your mind with these teams and with these guys, uh, chances are uh, you're not going to have that incentive to go there. And you're going to feel a little bitter about it. Yeah, no, I I totally agree. And you know, my girlfriend is actually jealous of how much I love PNC Park. You know, I would I would love to be able <laughs> I'd love to be able to go to PNC Park three times a week, but you know, it is three and a half hours away. Uh and you know, the I'd love to be able to just watch you know, watch McCutcheon every night and then yeah, hundred I hundred percent agree I'd be more likely to go there. Uh the sportscasters are finishing up with Jeff Passan, who's kind enough to join us. Uh, in the streets of Chicago, we got some ambient sound, which is great. Uh, you can follow Jeff. You can follow Jeff on Twitter. He's at Jeff Passan, P-A-S-S-A-N. Um, death to the VCS. I mentioned. Last thing, we'll get you out of here on this. It's going to be the All Star break soon. Uh, we kind of mentioned some of the interesting things from the first half. What are the things that you're going to be keeping track of in the second half of the baseball season? What are you interested to see play out that we haven't covered already? You know, the trade deadline is going to be very interesting, like I mentioned before. Uh, I want to see if Josh Hamilton can stay healthy and uh, end up getting that massive contract uh, in free agency. Uh, Steven Strasburg, of course, and what the Nationals do with him. And 
you know, both, both of the East divisions. Boston's only, I think, five games back at this point. Red Sox are playing really good baseball right now, and uh, the Yankees are atop the division, and uh, Baltimore sticking around, and Tampa, of course, is always a threat. And then in the NL, can Washington keep doing it? Can the Mets do what they're doing? Is there a comeback in, uh, in Philadelphia or Miami? And where do the Braves factor in all this? Uh, I'm not trying to be East Coast biased by any means, but to me, some of the best storylines do come from the East right now, and uh, I will be following those with uh, great curiosity. Just to follow up real quick, was the Beachy injury the most devastating injury, you know, relative to how important that player is to his team that we've had so far this year? Uh, you know, I think you can argue maybe Halliday is more so, but uh, at least he's going to be back by August or so. Right. Uh, you know, Beachy hurts, and the Braves thankfully have some pitching depth, whether it's in with Randall Delgado or Chris Medlin or Julio Tehran. They've got guys who can fill in in that spot, so... I don't think there's an immediate need for pitching with Atlanta right now, but Brandon Beachy had the best ERA in baseball, and you can't discount that by any means. So you're going to be in Buffalo in a couple of weeks to cover the AAA All-Star game, right? That's on your uh, date book? Uh, that, is, that is not on the agenda. Oh. But, uh, I, would, I, would, I would love to go to Buffalo and uh, grab a drink at Faraday's like I did uh, during my summer at the Buffalo News when I was... 19 years old, and uh, they didn't bother checking my ID. So thank you to the guys there. <laughs> I thought for sure you'd be coming to see Nick Bakai in the Celebrity uh, Home Run Derby, but I guess not. Nick Bakai? Yeah, that's who, that's, who we're, you know, that's who we got. You know, Nick Bakai is going to be in the Celebrity Home Run Derby. It's like him and... That is, that, that, that is so triple-A. <laughs> <laughs> he No rumors on whether or not he's going to talk in the cat voice, though. No, no tru- I, I, I really hope he doesn't. Yeah. All right, Jeff. Thanks for everything. We'll talk to you soon. All right. See you. Take care. See you. It's time for a new segment we've created called Five on Fantasy. With the first pick, Adrian Peterson, Drew Brees, Steven Jackson, Miles Austin, Leonette Ocho Cinco, TJ Cushmanzada. I once tricked my brother Greg into picking Roy Williams about nine rounds after he had actually been selected. <laughs> I don't care. I'm just trying to win me a fantasy football league. All right, I want to thank Jeff Passan for joining us on the program live from the streets of Chicago. Always love talking to Jeff. Moving on. Five on fantasy. We updated our round one mock draft last week. And this week we are going to update our round two. We're going to talk more about fantasy football on our Football Nation podcast. Again, this week we have an interview with Jay Clemens, the head fantasy writer for uh, Deadspin. Bleacher Report. Bleacher Report, sorry. Uh, You can find our podcast at www.footballnation.com. And Jay Clemens will be on that to talk fantasy football with us. this is what I got, Don. I'm going to recap real quick my round one from last week. I had Adrian Foster, one. LaShawn McCoy, two. Ray Rice, three. Aaron Rodgers, four. Kelvin Johnson, five. Drew Brees, six. Ryan Matthews, seven. Maurice Jones, Drew, eight. DeMarco Murray, nine. Matt Forte, ten. Trent Richardson, 11. Adrian Peterson, 12. And Darren McFadden, 13. What I did do this week is I made sure with these round two picks that I was considering a team. So this isn't necessarily a ranking from 1 to 26. Right. This is more of, okay, I have the war room. Right. I have Foster and then what I did is I went all the way to Foster and then those last two picks. 
you know, the 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 first pick and or the last pick in round two and the first pick in round three, kind of yeah, like we did last I week. I did the same. Uh, my first round last week, Arian Foster, Ray Rice, LaShawn McCoy, Calvin Johnson, Aaron Rodgers, very similar there to yours. Uh, Maurice Jones-Drew, Drew Brees, Matt Forte, Tom Brady, Ryan Matthews, Andre Johnson, Rob Gronkowski, and with my first pick in the second round, it was Larry Fitzgerald to go with Gronkowski. All right, let's do this uh, three at a time again. Okay, again, like I said, my first pick, of the second round was Larry Fitzgerald to go with Rob Gronkowski. Then to go with Andre Johnson, I have Chris Johnson, who I moved up a little bit. I guess I'm putting some faith into what everybody says. Look, I think a lot of the reason he is so high is less to do with him going to have a monster year, but he's going he's a pretty safe pick compared to everybody. He's really not too much of an injury risk. And we've talked to two national fantasy quote-unquote experts, and they both they love him agree. so far. Yeah. So. Um, Next, uh, I have Darren McFadden to go with on uh, to go with Ryan Matthews, which I, I would love that running back hit tandem there. Darren McFadden in my first draft, I didn't rank in my first two rounds, and that was just an oversight. All right, uh, so I said with pick thirteen, I would pick Darren McFadden that is paired with Adrian Peterson at twelve. Uh, pick fourteen, I have Chris Johnson, which would be paired with Trent Richardson, which would be nice. I think you know you take the rookie and then you have the veteran there. And then with pick 15, I have Larry Fitzgerald to go with Matt Forte, which would be really nice start Yeah, have those two guys. My fourth pick of the third round is Jamal Charles. He would be paired with – all right, let me do this here – Tom Brady. Okay, two more. Uh, then I have DeMarco Murray. I've moved up a lot of running backs since my first draft. I I guess just because there's a lack of them and there's not a lack at receiver, which, who I had ranked a little higher last time. So DeMarco Murray would go with Matt Forte. I'd be pumped about that. And with my number seven, or with my next pick. 17th overall. To go, this would be 18 overall. 18 overall. To go with Drew Brees, I have Greg Jennings. I would be tempted there to take Jimmy Graham, but because I have Brees, I don't like to have two guys from the same team. Mm -hmm. If Brees gets hurt, it would severely wreck both of their value or something. It's so funny because I'm kind of the opposite of that, and wait do you see how this played out for me. (laughs) So... At 16 overall, I have Tom Brady to go with DeMarco Murray. I think if you get Tom Brady at 16 overall, you'll be really pumped. Yeah. Uh, I have Ron, Rob Gronkowski going 17 overall to go with Maurice Jones-Drew. And I have Andre Johnson going 18 overall to go with Ryan Williams. I was really debating there between Gronkowski and Johnson who was going to be ahead of who. I ultimately went with the tight end just because that's a thinner position, I think, than wide receiver. So I put a little bit more value on Gronkowski. And also, there's a little bit of an injury risk with Andre Johnson. You, yeah, it'd be interesting to draft with you. I, I have a feeling you're going to get a lot of guys you want when you draft this year, because some of your some some people are going to see a pick like I think you said you had Richardson and Peterson like 11 and 12, and people are going to think, oh, good, somebody dropped to me because you made that pick. But I mean, you, you, there's a lot of risk there, or a lot of reward there too, if it works out. Um, and I said last week I might be too high on Peterson still. But I don't think he's going to be f- there at 44 no, or whatever, you I, know, where people yeah, are. I don't so. think so either. Um, my next pick with the 19th overall pick, which is round one pick seven. Around two pick seven. I have Mike Wallace. Uh, I rated him just behind Greg Jennings as a pretty safe play there. He just has to sign, right? He's still, I believe, on sign there. Mm-hmm. And he is going to go with Maurice Jones-Drew, so I like that team. My next pick 
goes against sometimes what my logic would be here, but I took Marshawn Lynch, who wasn't ranked on my original second round either. But again, he's really safe. I already have Aaron Rodgers at that. I have Aaron Rodgers to be a stud there. I guess what I want for my running back is just not to lose me a fantasy league. Marshawn, I don't think will do that. He might give be a real average eight to ten point guy per week, but hopefully he'll give you some better weeks than that with touchdowns. But Rodgers is going to be the monster on that team, and I just want my running backs not to lose it. My next pick is Jimmy Graham, and I have Jimmy Graham going with Calvin Johnson. That team is going to scramble for running backs, and they're going to really have to dig and probably draft running back. Upside. Have upside, to draft upside. And they're yep. going to have to draft extras. Like They're going to have to draft three, four guys that they think could be starters uh, because they're going to be hurting. But they have potentially the two – they hit the best tight end and potentially the best wide receiver. So so check out how my next three played out. At 19, this team had picked Drew Brees. I'm going to pair them with Jimmy Graham. Uh, 20, pick Calvin Johnson. Let's take yeah, Matt Stafford. Stafford. Yeah. And 21, pick Darren Rodgers. Greg Jennings is still there. Go with that. So I like the symmetry there. Yeah, my brother likes that strategy too. I don't avoid it, but I don't. Pretty much every time I've ever had like 10-11 or 12-13, I've always picked quarterback wide receiver that way. It always seems like that's the spot that in the past you'd get like Peyton Wayne. Like, right. One year I think I did Romo Owens, and okay. it was huge. It was it just paid off huge for me. Like, I think one night, like it was a Sunday night football game, I was down by like 20 points, and Romo threw a 50-yard touchdown pass to Owens, and bam, I was ahead. <laughs> right. You know, so. Okay. Uh, to so go, last three here. To go with LaShawn. Four, technically. Right. To go with LaShawn McCoy, I have Matthew Stafford. I'd be really pumped about that. Matthew Stafford really had a great year last year that was overshadowed by two or three greater years, but he had a monster year. Uh, To go with Ray Rice, I have Wes Welker. That team isn't exactly exciting, but especially if it's PPR, those guys are going to give you some numbers. And my last pick to go with Arian Foster, and I'd be pumped to have this start. And it makes me feel good about having number one, which sometimes can be rough because you're not picking for 20 picks, but... I took A.J. Green, uh, I guess for upside there. Some of the other guys, I like, it. like Roddy White, Knicks, I guess make me a tiny bit nervous because they've got a little bit of balls to share there. And I did go with Trent Richardson uh, because, A, it's I have time. Aaron Foster, and I think Trent Richardson is Great safe. Value. He's safe in terms of he's the guy there. So as bad as his team could be, there's not worries about really anything else there. All right, at 22 22- – Ray Rice is already on your team. Marshawn Lynch is still on the board. Great start. Uh, 23, LaShawn McCoy is on your team. You got a really safe guy there, so I took the risk of Jamal Charles. Okay. And at 24, Arian Foster being the first pick, I picked Cam Newton and Darren Sproles. So, and I the next probably my next guy is AJ Green or Sproles. Wallace or whoever my next wide receiver would be. ESPN did uh, their second mock draft. It was a 12-team draft. Actually, that doesn't matter. I was looking at that, but they also have their draft kit out now. And I was looking at their PPR rankings. They have Sproles something like number five or six for the running backs at in a PPR league. Do you, could you get yourself to take him at I mean, you're a Saints fan. You know Probably what he's going to do. Probably not. Not even in a PPR. No. Nah. Yeah, I don't know. Fifth it's, best back? I mean, so we're saying ahead of. Maybe it was six. So you got the big three, right? Probably MJD and probably 
I, I don't remember who. Probably else. ultimately, I'd rather pick him than. Even though it didn't work out this way here, I'd probably rather have him than Chris Johnson, but that's just a personal thing. But yeah. Probably would rather have him than Derek McFadden. Yeah, it's and weird. PPR. I, most of the leagues I play in are PPR. Some people don't even bring the PPR cheat sheets. They'll bring the wrong cheat sheets. I tend to think ESPN overplays the PPR a little bit. Like a guy like Roddy White, who I think most people in ESPN have ranked like 9 or 10, is like 2. And I know he gets a ton of catches, but there is another guy there this year. and. I don't know. Um, the one thing I noticed after two mocks is guys I probably won't own are guys like Steven Jackson, Frank Gore, Chris Johnson, and Marshawn Lynch. And I base this on where they're being drafted, like in the ESPN 12-team league. Just I'm not going to own them. I don't have Steven Jackson or Frank Gore in my top 25. I'm not sure I'd take them in the third round if we did another round. I mean, maybe as a sec- if I had a sure thing – First back, and I just need a backup at some point. But I think I'd rather draft for upside than Steven Jackson or Frank Gore. Um, and guys I probably will own, based on how I value them, are guys like Gronkowski, Graham, or A.J. Green. But that's based on just doing this draft with you and where they're going on ESPN drafts. Well, here's kind of the plan from here. We have next week off for the 4th of July. When we come back, it's going to be July 10th, and we're going to start – with five on fantasy being a regular segment at that point. Yep. And probably instead of doing these mock, we won't be doing these mock drafts each week. We'll be focusing each week on some kind of Player theme with, two, right. with fantasy football. Like maybe, maybe the first show back, our theme will be just playing fantasy football. I'd be interested different to hear ways, different things. We'll, we'll work it out, but I'd be we'll, interested to hear when people have drafts. Cause like doing all this gets me excited to have a draft, but I think it's way too early, but what's not way too early. Like I know in your leagues, we've tended to do them like the day before or real close to that just because of the injury worry. I think you gotta try to wait at least until the middle of July. Yeah. I mean, when did preseason games start? They don't even start until August. I mean, that's when all the injury risk is right. So yeah. I don't know. Injuries are always scary in fantasy. But you almost can't avoid them, even if you wait. The Unless later, you wait till the last day. The later you wait, the better. Right. All right, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back with Olympic champion Otto Bolden. Our next guest is from Trinidad and Trivago and is a four-time Olympic medal winner. He is the current national record holder in the 50, 60, and 200 meter events. Since the end of his career, he has spent time as an opposition senator in the Trinidad and Tobago Parliament, representing the United National Congress. Also, he is now a CBS and NBC Sports television broadcast analyst for track and field. This past weekend, Richard Deitch of SI gave a claim to his coverage of the U.S. Olympic trials in Oregon. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the very talented Otto Bolden. How are you doing today, Mr. Bolden? I'm good, man. How about yourself? Oh, doing very good. Uh, excited because, you know, I think like a lot of sports fans, I really enjoy uh, track and field and the competition and the races and the hurdling and all the things that are associated with that. Uh, but like most fans, I kind of get away from it the further we are from the Olympics and then come back to it the closer we get to the Olympics. And um, certainly the Olympic trials is the uh, first sign. Is, is, is that the sense you get with the majority of sports fans that, you know, this is the time 
in the sports calendar that they get most interested in track and field and those kinds of events? Well, track fans tend to fall into only one of two categories. The real hardcore track and field fans who watch absolutely everything there is to watch, whether it's on ESPN, CBS, NBC, Comcast, whatever, Fox Sports, uh, whether it's being streamed online from Ostrava. And then you have, uh, I think, the other group, which, as you said, every four years they start paying attention for about a couple months, and they know that Bolt is a favorite, and Gatlin looks good, and Tyson Gay is right. back, and you know, Johan Blake from Jamaica is, is a young up-and-comer. But, um, you know, it, it's really only two categories. You don't see people who, um, who don't fall into one of two, those two categories. You know, let's start with Bolt because what he did at the last Olympics is something that maybe I've never seen before. I mean, in the one race, it's like he pulled up with, like, a little bit to go and was pounding his <laughs> chest, and I was just thinking, oh, my God. Four years later, what can we expect from Bolt? Is he still at the same level, and who could challenge him, if anyone? I don't. Um, well, he hasn't run. Uh, he hasn't run a personal best since 2009. But you know, when your personal best is 9.58, <laughs> it's a little difficult. You know, it's like it's like scoring. It's like if your high your high game in the NBA is 60 points, you're not going to have a. You're not going to repeat that too often. So his personal best uh dates back to 2009 um he's run 97 i believe every at least 97 every year since then um but i don't think that it's the sort of field lining up in london uh where he's going to be able to at 70 meters in 100 meters start to beat his chest and look around that was really just kind of a for uh, for, for lack of of a better pun a lightning like head um, I think that even he was surprised by by his margin of victory, and that just kind of came out naturally. But um, it's not going to be that easy this time because um, there was no Tyson Gay in that final. I would expect Tyson Gay to be in that final this time. There was no Justin Gatlin in that final, and he just ran 9.80, uh, a time which only Bolt has bettered by a few by a few hundreds this this year um, in 2012. So it's likely to be a much better field. To uh, to compete against both this year, which means that we may not see the blistering times, but we may see a better race. You mentioned Gatlin and Gay, and uh, those two guys are uh, marching towards full recovery. Um, for Gay, it was hip surgery about a year ago, and uh, Gatlin, he's had a, a, a doping past. Uh, these two guys in their career, as, as they inch towards this game, uh, where, where do you assess them? Are, are, is is one ahead of the other? Are they about the same? You know, what do you expect from Gatlin and Gay? No, I we had uh, Gay winning because I felt like Gatlin was starting really, really poorly, and that would kind of make him even with Gay. And I always go with the guy with the better two hundred. But Gatlin has uh, shown me something here because he he is starting the way he started indoors when he won the World Indoor Championship. And he's starting the way he was starting, quite frankly, when he won the 2004 Olympic gold. Um, the reality is that if you look at, uh, at, at Gatlin, he is a real threat for gold because if he can start like that, the way he did yesterday in that final, um, I think he's a threat to anyone, uh, Bolt, Blake, Powell, anybody, um, assuming he looks like that in London. Uh, so I would put Gatlin ahead. The only reason why um, he's ahead of, of Gay, though, is because Tyson Gay is not 
fit. He only started really getting ready in March. Most sprinters were working out for at least four or five months before that. Um, and he started, he's old, you know, he's, 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 He's over 30 now, and he's also dealing with pain, he says, every day. And that can go up and down. You know, he may, you know he's now on the team, but he may get to London, and his body says, you know, we'd ha- we've had enough. So I, I give, Gay, I give uh, Galen the edge because Gay is still struggling with his fitness. And there's nothing wrong with Gatlin, and he's had a lot of time off, and I think a, le- a lot fewer miles on the odometer. You know, I think with all sports, we're dealing with, the bigger, stronger, faster aspect of athletics. Every single day, people get bigger, stronger, and faster. The the athletes get freakier and freakier each year. Uh, what is it about Bolt, and maybe if it's not Bolt, it's somebody else, but what makes someone like a Usain Bolt or a Gatlin, what makes them the fastest ever? Like How do they, how do, they do um, that? How do they what? You know how how did how does one become the fastest ever in this day and age of bigger, <laughs> stronger, and faster? Well, it's like it's like asking you know how do you become a thoroughbred? Um, they're certainly born, not made, and we've learned a lot um, in, from the scientific community in terms of fast twitch muscles and where um, there's not an accident that. If you look at, I think there there's probably eighty or ninety guys that have run sub ten. Now it's not an accident that you can trace most of their uh, most of their lineage back to uh, back to West Africa. Um, but with Bolt and Gatlin, um, I wouldn't even necessarily link those two together. Justin is is a physical specimen um, in his own right. He is very uh, he's very powerful. He's very disciplined. Very unflappable. Not a guy you're going to see choke when there's a big moment. That's what makes him great, and that's what made him. That's what has already made him um, an Olympic and world champion. With Bolt, it's a little different because he's a little bit more of an anomaly. You can probably find a couple more Gatlins as time goes on. Very unlikely you're going to see another Bolt because Bolt, first of all, at six feet five inches tall, that is unheard of in this event running those sorts of times. But Bolt is 6'5", with the turnover and foot speed of somebody who is my height, 5'9". So that right there separates him from the rest of the world. And that's why, no matter what, we can talk about Gatlin and Asafa Powell and whoever we want to, Tyson Gay, Johan Blake. If Bolt has a good night in London, it doesn't matter what anyone else does because on paper and in terms of math and him and how many steps he needs to take to complete that 100, nobody else can compete with that. Now, what makes it a race is if Bolt has a poor start, if he panics, if he has an injury coming up until that point, you know, there are a lot of variables. But if Bolt is on, I don't see anybody beating him. Challenging him, sure, anybody can challenge him. But beating him, no. So Bolt is so much of a a physical anomaly and a physiological anomaly that it's just almost impossible to to say well we're going to create you want to create another Usain Bolt you got to start in a lab or you got to find some some basketball players or something because you may even be able to get the height or where you're going to get that that turnover where you're going to get that fast twitch they, he's really a very very unique athlete you know there's a couple of things that uh, track and field fans might worry about as we get closer and closer to this race. One thing is there's always the fear that what we're watching isn't real in the sense that there's some cheating going on with drugs. The other thing is we had a race about a year or so ago now where um, Usain Bolt 
got out of the gates early and was immediately disqualified. I guess it's two things. One, uh, they do allow now for one mistaken start without the guy being kicked out, correct? And two, no. Uh, oh, no, it's still the same way? One and you're done goes the rule. What do you think of that rule? I've, I've, I was against it when they proposed it. Um, I literally had a dream um, last year, which luckily I tweeted, so I had proof. <laughs> um, and I said, I dreamt today that uh, somebody got thrown out of, I believe I said Worlds or Olympics or something like that. I said a, a major championship meet. And everybody said, yeah, well, don't say that because we don't want it to happen. And then when it happened at Worlds, everybody went, everybody went oh, my gosh, it actually, this is, this is exactly what you said was going to happen. And it's not because I'm psychic. It's because when you put the pressure to perform and the pressure of uh, a major championship stage, it's going to happen to somebody. I just, you know, I would have, I don't want it to happen to anyone, but when you, when you, when you're in a sport that suffers from a lack of attention, to throw out the biggest star uh, that your sport has was a, was a very crushing um, blow. So I, I hate the rule. The rule was supposed to save time on television. It does the exact opposite. Um, I wish they would go back to the rule you're talking about, which is what it was before 2010, which is one false start charge to the field, and then we can talk about uh, the next person uh, being disqualified. But that's the that's the only thing that's the only thing that works in terms of uh, the the four star rule that I would be happy with. In terms of the uh, the other thing that you talked about with the drugs, you know, it's like with them taking blood now, I am a little bit more uh, secure that what we're seeing is real. But this is never going to change. It's always going to be a case of if there is anybody who feels like they're going to go that route, somebody's going to try. It's just a matter of you know, will they get caught? The sportscasters are here with uh, the great Olympic champion, Otto Bolden, who you can find on Twitter at A-T-O-B-O-L-D-O-N. Uh, he's covering the Olympic trials for NBC in Oregon right now. Uh, a few more questions. Uh, one is, we talked a little bit about how track and field has kind of got this seasonal nature to it. Is there anything track and field can do to return to the national conversation in a non-Olympic year? Um, track and field has to be on television a lot more. It has to be on television a lot more when people are watching. Um, nothing matters in the United States, certainly, unless it is on television a lot. Um, that's one thing. I also think we have to, f- we have to have, we have to do a better job of marketing um, our athletes. And that, you know, I guess that's up to, you know, countries and so on uh, in terms of getting their, their stars out there. The reality is we have some very intelligent um, very attractive. Um, we have some really good athletes who, you know, if we would just get their story out there, I think we would be fine. Um, as far as what you do in being uh, a track analyst and, and a great one, someone who gets acclaim on the internet from people who cover these things, how would you define a good track analyst? Um, a good track analyst has to explain, has to find that fine, that fine line between explaining what's on the screen to somebody who has never seen a track and field meet before, but yet still not insult those who are absolutely aware of what they are seeing. Um, and, and that's something I have to balance all the time um, because you don't want to dumb it down, <laughs> but at the same time, you don't want to 
start talking so so many technical things that people go, what, like, what am I watching? You know, it's it, it's it's really a fine line. Um, I also tend to bring my instincts and my my experience to what to what you're about to see. Um, you know, I, I get a lot of credit for being able to forecast what is going to come, um, and that's because this pretty much not a sprinting situation that I myself didn't somehow experience, and therefore I, I think I have a good sense of of what's to come based on, you know, my many years involved in the sport. You know, we talked a little bit about the rules earlier, and one thing that shocked me over the weekend is that there wasn't a rule in place to determine what would happen if third place was a tie, and we had this happen in the ladies' 100 meters, uh, Alison Felix, and um, you got to help me with the other lady's name. I don't want to screw it up. Jenna Batarmo. Okay. <laughs> Jenna Batarmo. Yeah, they ended up in a dead heat, and I guess the decision has been made that they're going to let the athletes decide if they want to do a runoff or if they're going to go for a coin flip, flip. They have a rule to decide. What are your instincts telling you is how, how this is going to be resolved, and, and what do you expect to happen? I don't expect that there will be a runoff. I think that um, as much as the peers like myself will cringe, it will be decided by a coin toss. I just don't see at what point they're going to fit this runoff in. Remember that Jenna Batarmo and Allison Felix both are competing in the 200. And let's look at it from this perspective. One of them has not yet qualified for the Olympic team in an individual event because they both cannot go. And people have said, oh, why don't you just take four? It doesn't work that way. You only get three entries. So clearly, one or the other is not going to go. That leaves one of them with no Olympic individual spot. It's difficult to say to somebody who has not yet qualified for the Olympics, and we don't know which of them it is, you have to go and worry about securing your 100-meter spot, perhaps at the expense of your 200-meter spot, because Allison Felix is one of the favorites for gold, and Jenna Batarmo, make no mistake about it, has run well enough in, two, in 2012 to make that team if she sets a personal best at these trials. So they both have a good shot to make the 200 team as well, and they're, and they're coached by the same guy, Bobby Kersey, who has rightfully said, do not talk to me about this thing until I have prepared my athletes for the 200, they have to qualify in both, and then we, we have to at least get them qualified in the 200, try to get them qualified in the 200, and then we can revisit that. Um, and it sounds like a runoff has to happen before the 200. They're never going to agree to that. It's never going to happen. We're already at Monday. The 200-meter rounds start on Thursday. Nobody, including their coach, is going to agree to that, which means the runoff doesn't happen, which, mean the co- which means the coin flip has to happen. You know, it seems to me like you're on the same page here, so maybe I'm preaching to the choir, but we can have a conversation about what can track and field do to be more relevant and to be more in the public eye, and what would be greater and more dramatic than two ladies having a runoff with a chance to go to the Olympics at stake, and it seems like the opportunity is going to pass us by, huh? Track fans would love it. I would love to call the race. I think it would be a, a, a big spectacle. I think the ratings would maybe even be higher than our regular broadcast. Let's well, let's have it here, uh, you know, a night or two after. We'll keep the trucks and the, and the satellite going. <laughs> let's turn off the lights. Let, let's put some floodlights on these ladies. Let's turn off the clock because the clock doesn't matter. The fans in Eugene, Oregon would show up for that in droves. We could get sponsors. Everybody could make a whole bunch of money. And then here we go, ladies and gentlemen, for the final spot in the women's 100-meter team for the USA. 
one of these women will be going to London in the 100, on your marks. I think it would be great television, but that's in a fantasy world. I don't think we're going to see it. All right, last thing. Uh, Lolo Jones has made quite a name for herself um, by doing things like tweeting that she's a virgin, and there was a great uh, profile about her on Real Sports, which I hope you got to see. I really enjoyed it. Um, she quali- Absolutely. Yeah, she qualified for the Olympics uh, this weekend, which is great news considering she was so close to gold medal last time, uh, tripping on that last hurdle. Uh, what, where, what do you, where do you see her as a competitor at this stage? Is she someone who has a chance to go to London and compete for a medal, or is just getting on the team uh, a great accomplishment for where she is in her career? No, for Lolo, I think um, she's a lot more dangerous now that she is on that team because. Um, you know, you can make a case that she is um, she doesn't have a lot of Olympics left in her based on her age. It tend it tends to be a um, most most of history says that it's an event where your mid to late twenties is when you uh, you're going to be at your peak. Lolo Jones is dangerous, but she has to continue to improve. Um, maybe her race uh, at the trials was worth it was into a headwind, but maybe it was worth maybe twelve seven or twelve six. I can't remember exactly what the time was. I don't think that you even get on the podium in London unless you are under 12.60 seconds. And Kelly Wells has already done that for the year. I believe Don Harper has as well. Um, and if she hasn't, her time to win these trials was certainly the equivalent of that. So Lolo Jones, um, I think she loves the spotlight, obviously. And I don't think she wants to be an afterthought on also ran in London. It means that she is going to pour every single thing that she has into getting back to that final, and then, as we saw in the trials, anything could happen. I didn't have Lolo making this team, and, and, and some people didn't even have her making the final. Uh, I didn't have her making this team because I just felt like there were too many other people. Well, guess what? The other people choked, and Lolo did not. So um, all credit to her. She did a fantastic job, and she's now on the team, and now everybody else has to worry about her because she, uh, she's a threat. She's a threat because she thrives on that attention, and there's no bigger stage than that Olympic final stage. All right, it's uh, Otto Bolden, who you can find on Twitter. Great insight about all this stuff. It's at A-T-O-B-O-L-D-O-N. Olympic trials are going on in Eugene. Thank you very much for spending the time with us. And, you know, maybe as a, a very, very, very last thing, we kind of talked about all these different things, men, women, going back and forth, talking about the sport, the media. Is there kind of one other thing that maybe I missed because I'm a more casual track and field fan, kind of one other story, one thing you can leave us with that we can either watch in the remaining trials or something to look forward to in the London games? Um, I think both of them happened in the 400. Uh, Jeremy Warner, who has been a, a great champion for a number of years, he was the Olympic champ in 04 in Athens and world champion in 05 and 07. He's been a mainstay on the U.S. relay since 2004, um, undefeated in that event, um, as, as has the U.S. Um, you know, he collapsed to the track and has not talked to anybody, uh, finished sixth in the, in the, in the, men's 400 meter final that was that was tough to watch because i know what it's like when you know the end of the road you basically hit the end of the road i'm not saying that he's completely done but it certainly seems as though he's at the beginning of the end of his career because there's a lot younger guys running a lot better than him now but to maybe the best story of these championships is uh university of southern california's Bershawn nellum and you know he got he was a really highly touted high school phenom went to uh went to the usc and in South Central Los Angeles one night was the victim of a drive-by shooting. Mm-hmm. The shotgun fragments 
remained in his leg. They just took the last one out recently. He wins the Pac-12 title, and I, I actually thought about picking him in my, uh, in my picks here. And then he lost the NCAA championship. I think he was third or f- fourth or fifth. And I went, ah, maybe there's some collegiate guys better than him. Well, he came to these trials and found a way to get third, and now he has made his first Olympic team. And that's really an amazing story. We won't see him anymore at these trials, but that's a name to look That's a guy you can look at and root for in London because that's a great story of uh, perseverance by that young athlete. You know, I know it's a busy time for you, so I can't thank you enough for fitting us in. It's really been an honor to have you on the program. Thank you very, very much. Anytime. Thanks for having me on. Thank you, sir. All right, special thanks to Otto Bolden for being on the show, talking track and field. It's not something we get to do all the time, but something that we will do a little bit more um, between now and the the end of the Olympics. Uh, Book Club update for this week. Real quickly, the Book Club Book of the Month for June has been The Last Natural, Bryce Harper's Big Gamble in Sin City and the Greatest Amateur Season Ever. And in just a couple minutes, we're going to have the author of that book, Rob Mish, on the program to talk all things Bryce Harper and that great last amateur season that he had in junior college baseball. Uh, Like I said in the last segment, or two segments ago, we are going to be off next week for the 4th of July holiday. When we come back, the date's going to be July 10th. And on that program, we will have the author of the Book Club Book of the Month for July, Jack McCollum. Uh, His book is called Dream Team. How Michael, Magic, Larry, Charles, and the greatest team of all time conquered the world and changed the game of basketball forever. I'm already about halfway through it, and I'll tell you what, it's great. It's a really, really good book. And I'm yeah, learning, you said you were pumped about it after yeah, the documentary. And I'm learning a ton about Magic Johnson and Larry Bird and Michael Jordan, guys that I should know way more about than I do <laughs> right. based on their historical significance in sports. So I highly recommend... The small problem with the way the book club is going to work out for July, when you're dealing with a Hall of Famer like Jack, you you take Jack when you can get him, and we can get him on July 10th, which happens to be the day the book comes out. So unfortunately, we usually like to do this where we all get to read the book first and then have Jack on and, and talk to him. It's not going to work out that way that month, the next month, um, but I guess it kind of is what it is. Like I said, when you... You can get Jack. You get Jack. Uh, Looking ahead a little bit for the book club, uh, the most anticipated sports book of the year is going to be Joe Posnanski's book, Paterno. I have some more information about that. Here's what I have. It comes out the last week of August. Uh, Posnanski's not doing any interviews until then, and the book is embargoed. We will get a copy of the book when the embargo is lifted. Wow. And... Joe will be on with us in the first wave of promotion for the book. So we're very excited that we're going to be able to have a copy of the book as soon as the embargo is lifted, and we can't wait to read it and can't wait to talk to Joe about it. One last thing about The Last Natural. I have a signed copy of it available here. If you're interested in a signed copy of The Last Natural, just send me an email. Let me know you want a signed copy. However many entries we'll get, put them in a hat, pull one out, I'll email you back, let you know, get your address, and send it out to you as soon as I can. Uh, So let's take a break and come back with Rob Mish and talk about The Last Natural.
Our next guest is from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and is a graduate of San Diego State University, where he would often smack Kyle Turley around in bar fights. He has spent over 25 years in the sports media, working primarily in the newspaper business for the Pasadena Star News and the Las Vegas Sun. His work has appeared in USA Today, Washington Post, and CBS Sportsline. His new book, The Last Natural, chronicles his year embedded with the College of Southern Nevada, chronicling the season of phenom Bryce Harper. He is making his first appearance on Sportscasters today. A warm welcome to the very talented Rob Mish. How's it going, Rob? Hey, Steve. I'm doing good, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're really excited to have you on. Been enjoying reading the book all month. Perfect book for June. Uh, you know, a book about uh, baseball, college baseball. Last night, the um, College World Series ended, Arizona ending the reign of uh, South Carolina. But this was junior college, a little bit different. Yep. Um, let's start from the before a page was written and tell us a little bit about how it came together that you were able to get the kind of unparalleled access that you ended up getting to the uh, Southern Nevada baseball team. Yeah, Stephen, you know, uh, between December 09 and January 10, there was a, just a confluence of events that uh, that were pretty fantastic. Um, the biggest thing that happened was on December 1, 09, I got laid off from the Las Vegas Sun in what was uh, the biggest bloodbath of layoffs I've ever experienced in in my career. And if you know anybody in journalism, you know that the the hatchet is always right around the corner. And uh, for the past 15 years, it's been a very turbulent industry. And so it was no surprise. In fact, it was actually kind of a relief. I felt so much worse for just about everybody else who got laid off because there was people there who'd been there two and three decades, family people, mortgages, and uh, they really lived and breathed the ink of that newspaper. So it was a traumatic day for a lot of people. I, see, I had already been laid off before, about eight years earlier, and once you get laid off in your life, you know it's not the end of the world. And even if it is, you need to be positive and be thinking positively. So because it happened to me before, I knew to personally to, to be nothing but positive to think that uh, something good if not great would be right around the corner and then on my way to the parking lot when I left the Las Vegas Sun on that final day I called a girl I had been seeing for about six months in Phoenix and I kind of thought it was something special and I told her what happened and right then and there I could hear it in her voice <laughs> that she had soured on whatever we had together <laughs> so the, the timing of those two events was perfect because, uh, you know, when times get tough, what did she do? She ran. And so I right. thought it was beautiful because what am I going to do? Learn that five years down the road when it, you know, in a marriage or something. And so because I got laid off and because she bounced out of my life, I had every second of my life to devote to a project like this. I was doing some freelance work for a new weekly magazine that started up in Vegas called Seven. And just, I had just suggested a simple 500-word story to the people at Seven on going, going over to that junior college and doing a piece on Bryce, who had left his sophomore year at Las Vegas High to go to the junior college. And I mean, this was the most basic of stories. In fact, I didn't even quote Bryce in the story. It was so simple. But I had spent two days out there. And I gathered way more information than I needed, which I like to do most of the time anyway. But but I'm sitting here in my office where I'm sitting right now, 
and I was digesting my notes and transcribing my tapes, and I, I don't know any other way to explain this, but uh, lightning struck me and bells went off, and I called Tim Chambers the coach right away. I knew what I had. I knew how confident he sounded in describing what was going to happen that season, and I called him up and said, Skip, is there any reason why every day of this season shouldn't be documented? He said, get your bleep down here. <laughs> so the next morning, I, I, I didn't sleep all night. I knew exactly what I wanted to tell him. 8 a.m. the next day, I'm in, the, uh, in his office in the, the ballpark down there in Henderson and walk right in. He goes, what are you thinking? And I said, Skip, if this season is going to be so historic like you think it is, like you know it is, shouldn't every day be chronicled? And that's basically all it took. He told me right then and there, it's all yours. You're in the dugout for games. You're on the coach for road trips. You're going to see it all. You're going to breathe it. You're going to smell it. You're going to live it. And I said, I am all in. Now, what I also probably need to tell you is my history with Tim Chambers, the coach. In October, I will have lived here 10 years. And when I first moved here, basically I was doing general features and with, with a focus on UNLV basketball. Um, Around what noticed, year was that then? Right around 19, 2000, right around 2000? You know what? I, I moved here in uh, uh, October 2002. Okay. And uh, soon after I, I, I moved here, early, early the next year in 2003, I, I, I couldn't help but notice this junior college on the outskirts of Vegas uh, that hits with wood. Uh, to give you some idea where I live, I live in Henderson also. I'd say my condo right now is the midway point between the junior college and the strip. Gotcha. So I'm right in the middle there, and so it's 10 miles, 11 miles from my front door. Uh, but I noticed this junior college that hits with wood, and it was very intriguing. Um, there's more than 200 baseball leagues collegiate baseball leagues in this country, junior college, NAIA, NCAA, all different divisions. There's more than 200 collegiate baseball leagues, and there's only four that hit with wood. Three of the, All four are in junior college. Three are in the uh, best division of junior college, and the College of Southern Nevada just happens to be in one of those, the Scenic West Athletic Conference, which is... 10 miles from Bryce Harper's front door. So uh, back in early 03, I, I just started spending free time out there at the junior college. It was just so intriguing that, a, that a, a college would hit with wood. And I began doing stories on how they were doing, doing profiles on some of their kids. Next thing you know, they qualified for the Junior College World Series, and they wound up winning it. Hmm. But before they went to Grand Junction to win that JC World Series, I, I had spoken with Chambers quite a bit during that season, but it was right before they went to the World Series that we had a a real heart-to-heart -heart talk on the outskirts of his field. Nobody else around. It was a glorious noon uh, day, and he pretty much was extremely candid about his life and his father. His father uh, beat his beat his mother. Was very unkind to Tim and his brother and sister. Um, I think the last 10 years of Tim's father's life, Tim probably spoke with him three times. 
He passed away in 98, 97. Tim isn't even, wasn't even certain of the year when, when we really started highlighting this funeral. But he goes back to Bartlesville, Oklahoma to attend his father's funeral. And he, 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 he forced the funeral director to open the casket. And it was such a contentious scene. He was about to do it with the, with the audience right there. And finally, the funeral director said, no, 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 okay, don't do it. I'll do it, but first let me clear the crowd. I don't know how many people were there, maybe a couple dozen people, but he said, just excuse us for five minutes. Everybody left, and the funeral director opened the casket so that Tim could see that that, in fact, was his old man. Uh, he was laying there with uh, a pack of marble lights on his chest and then uh, a little paper plate with a, a square of a square piece of uh, chocolate cake right there. And uh, Tim needed to, to know for sure that that was his dad, that he would never hear that, that screech again. So he knew that the SOB would be buried in that box and that Tim could bury his past with the old man. He, he, that's how awful the old man was to him. So he just he needed to close that chapter and move on. I wrote that story exactly how he told it to me. And it was very dramatic, and I went right off the bat with, the uh, the moment in the funeral parlor when he wanted to open the casket to make sure the SOB was in there. It was from that story that we became pretty tight right away. And from then on, I would go down there and visit him just to have lunch, just to sh- BS with him. Um, to, I would continue to uh, keep track on who was doing well, to profile his kids, to try to give him publicity when his kids were moving on and going to Georgia or Florida or South Carolina. Um, so flash forward, that, that's kind of a, a history that matters when you flash forward to uh, early January in 2010 when I uh, go into his office and we have this discussion about chronicling this, this incredible historic season. That is what made Tim trust me. He trusted me with his guys in that season, and I trusted him that he knew what was going to happen, what was going to unfold, that the kid was going to have a dynamic season that, yes, I could... I could devote my entire breathing life to that team in that season and hopefully a book that would come out of it. And uh, here we are today. I got very fortunate in many, many ways, and I'll never stop thinking Tim Chambers. Well, you know, that's a great, I think, way to kind of explain how you got there. Why don't you explain for our listeners a little bit how Bryce Harper ended there and the unique circumstances behind that? Yeah, again for him, what a confluence of events. He, uh, he he had nothing else to prove at Las Vegas High School. He hit 600 as a freshman. I think he hit 620 as a sophomore. He was the first uh, non-senior to win the Baseball America Player of the Year honors, and he did that as a sophomore. So he really had nothing else to prove. It was almost a situation where uh, you could almost regress, if not hurt someone. And in fact, he told me that if he had returned to Las Vegas High as for his junior year, he was going to uh, petition the state high school board to hit with Wood as a junior. Um, his swing is just so vicious, and uh, he's just such a dominating player. So it was a deal where he really had nothing else to prove. He'd always been accustomed to playing up against much older competition. And so a move to leave Las Vegas High after his sophomore year to get his GED, to go to this junior college, 
uh, and play as a, well, he would have been a junior. He was a freshman in, in college at the junior college. He would hit with wood. He could show scouts exactly what he did with wood against competition that has been likened a little bit to low-class A-league. There's a lot of good pitchers in the Scenic West Athletic Conference. And so it was just a move up to see what he could do, to, to test himself again against these new pitchers, this new league. And he also had quite uh, an impetus to do this, too, because remember in, in early 2010, you knew that at the end of the 2011 Major League season, the... Uh, CBA between Major League Baseball and its players was going to change and probably change drastically. Signing bonuses would probably be severely cut back and there would probably be, uh, depending where you were picked, is where your salary would be slotted. So those two things gave him uh, uh, the, the reason to kind of form his own go-around to be drafted a year before his high school class graduates. So nobody had ever done this bold maneuver in, in baseball. And because of the changing CBA, Tim Chambers is convinced that nobody will ever do it again because it, uh, you know the reasonings just aren't there. And for that reason, that is how we came to title the book, The Last Natural. And boy, are um, Nationals fans very happy that it worked out that way. Because they wouldn't have been able to draft him if it didn't work out that way, at least not that season, right? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, he had a fallback. Uh, the fallback was if, uh, say, he didn't get picked first, if he got picked second or third, or say something else happened, um, he had the option, obviously, to return to junior college for his sophomore year, and then he would have been drafted again, and that would not have been under the new CBA, obviously, because that was enacted in, in uh, after that season. So they had that fallback, but, you know, everything obviously went well. All the dominoes that needed to fall, they fell, and there was number one $10 million deal, and, uh, and the rest are kind of history. You know, there's a couple of really interesting things I want to talk to you about that I took from the book. Sure. One thing is you had all this great access. I mean, you had mm -hmm. unparalleled access, really, to the team. One person who really didn't give you much access was Bryce Harper's father. What, what was with him? Well, you know what? I think um, Bryce's father and mother, they, you know, game to game to game, they were pretty nervous. And if I would have put myself in their shoes watching my son attempt what Bryce attempted, um, what a what a bold deal and what what a way I mean, they put themselves out there. Everything was on the line, game to game. Uh I, you read about a game in Twin Falls, Idaho, where he took on uh I don't even know how to say this, it was it was not a well thought of thought out uh, dive for a ball in right field foul territory. And it was on concrete. There was a yeah. brick tool shed ahead of him. And Stephen, it, it really did look like, I wrote this, but the image was of someone having thrown an octopus out of the window of a moving car. There was nothing out there in right field but limbs just tossing and turning. And it really looked like something devastating happened out there. If if you would have said he blew out his right knee and, I mean, ACL, MCL, meniscus, everything, kneecap broken, that would have been in line with what you saw. It was so incredible. And uh, to make a long story short, he ends up catching the last two 
innings of that game. So that's how durable Bryce is and how much he can take a hit and, and come back and bounce back well. Um, but that's just one instance of his parents were were in the stadium for that game, and so were his grandparents. And I cannot imagine. I mean, obviously I quoted his mom and his dad about that exact situation and what they saw and how much they gasped. And it was, I mean, everything was on the line right there. And I'm sure so many prayers were being said. Um, so I hope that's not too much of a long-winded answer. But I think his parents were really kind of concerned about one thing, and that was his, his uh, welfare, his health, that he would continue to do well. And, you know, to be honest, too, the, the book was about that season and that team and Bryce and the dynamics of, his, of him with his teammates, how they got along. That is, that's the biggest thing that intrigued me is in, in such a spectacular season, what happens during the course of the season? What are the jealousies? What are the highs and lows? What are the conflicts? What, what are the dramatic points and how are they handled? Um, I had been reading a book about uh, Mickey Mantle in the late fall of '09, and it was done by Jane Levy, and it's the a fantastic boy. book mm-hmm. called The Last Boy. Yeah, we love it. And she she obviously talked about the last amateur season of Mickey Mantle. But when I came to it, I reread it, and all I wanted was more. All I envisioned was, you know what, that there's, there had to have been so much more there. I would have, at that moment, I thirsted for a book from cover to cover, only about the last amateur season of a star like Mickey Mantle, of someone like Hank Aaron, Willie Mays, Joe DiMaggio, and that book does not exist. I went out and I got uh, books about, obviously, Willie Mays, Roberto Clemente, Hank Aaron, and their last amateur seasons are covered, but not to any degree like what I thirsted for. And, you know, somebody saw something in that season with these stars to really build a launching pad for these guys that made them stars. What did they see? What did scouts see? How did, how did those stars perform in that last amateur season? How did they handle um, tough times? How did they handle being in opposing ball yards where they are obviously known about, but what kind of heckling did they take? What kind of abuse did they take from opposing fans and opposing players? What was it like them dealing with their own teammates? Because there had to have been jealousies. That's just human. And uh, what was it like dealing with the manager? Because as I found out in 2010, Tim Chambers had to operate with a completely set of rules, different set of rules for Bryce than the, uh, the rest of the team. There was team rules, and then there was Bryce's rules. And you needed that double standard, and all the players knew that that's the way it had to be because it was just such a special, unique circumstance. And... Uh, that, that book just did not exist. And to take that a couple steps further, uh, you know, what was it like these these guys in their these stars in their amateur seasons? What was it like them dealing with their own expectations and their own uh, not the hype, but uh, as I found out with with Bryce, nobody can expect more from him than him. And so people talk about the hype, but all of that is two or three or four or five rungs below what Bryce expects of himself. So what was it like, Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, Joe DiMaggio, uh, expecting so much of themselves, but then they got 0 for 5. How do they deal with it? Um, and, and, you know, that, that's vital because, I mean, I, I could just take this another step as, as much as we talk because, uh, 
you know, Chambers did not have that blueprint. He did not have a certain set of, or, or a way he was going to approach the season. It just kind of developed as he went along, and he made it up as it, as it went along. He hadn't coached a high school kid, a teenager, uh, of you know that young in 10 years. So this was going to be different. Here he is with his high school kid. Yeah, he's super talented, and yeah, he knows him, but he's a teenager, and, and he could act, react to things in an immature way. Um, and then one other aspect is if there are some young bucks out there who think they can follow in Bryce's footsteps, who think they're pretty hot shit, uh, well, guess what? Now the book exists. This is what he went through. Right. Do you want to follow in those footsteps? Do you want to put up with what he did, deal with what he did? And can you, could you put up with that? It's it's quite a lot. And, uh, you know, now for other coaches, that blueprint exists. Do you know or have any insight into what Bryce and his family think of the project now that it's complete? I have heard through the grapevine that, uh, that they're happy with it. Uh, uh, I talk to people who talk to Brian Harper frequently, and uh, he's he's a big fan of, of a book being written about that season, about that season being uh, captured forever. And uh, I, I think it's I think there's a lot of positive there. I think there's a lot of mutual respect between me and them. That's great. Was there was there a point in the season where you knew that? it was going to be the greatest amateur season ever and not just, you know, cause the season could have went a lot of different ways. Was there, a, was there a turning point where you, where you knew, wow, this is going to be a really, really special season. Jeez, Steven, that's, that's a, that's a really good question. I, I had a lot of faith that what I was doing was right. And, uh, to give you an idea of kind of the, the, uh, the chronology of events, it was in early January 2010 that I started it, and then it was exactly one year later, on 1-11-11, when St. Martin's bought it. So I had an entire year into it before I sold it. So at any point, it could have gone south. You know, if if Bryce indeed tore up his knee in that awful fall in Idaho, well, there it goes. You know, in fact, I had one of the uh, one of the managers on the team. Sean Larimer, five seconds after that happened, he's walking by me in the dugout. He just goes, oh, man, there goes the book. <laughs> and uh, and it was it was pretty tenuous. About halfway through that season, um, the guys a little bit started coming up to me. I hear you, you're writing a book, huh? You're writing a book about this. And, and I was, but... But I wasn't. I mean, I was keeping. I mean, they. There was. I was always at practice. I was always on road trips. They always saw me. I was always there. But like you said, it could have gone south in so many ways. Um, I was, but I wasn't because I just didn't know. I, I felt real good. I had a lot of faith in it. Um, but there was also some points where it looked like it had a life of itself especially toward the end of the season. Things were happening um, pretty regularly that told me that I was on the, the right path, that what I did was was absolutely correct. Uh, for instance, when we're in Lamar, Colorado, uh, way down in the southeast corner of the state, 
um, at the district tournament. They need to win this tournament to go to the Junior College World Series. Well, you know, obviously, for a hook of a potential book, it sure would be good if, if the team went to the JC World Series. And when Bryce hit four home runs to beat Central Arizona, and it was just a whitewash, like 23-11 or something, when he hit four homers to punch their berth in the Junior College World Series, I thought, wow, yeah, this is on it. We're on our way. This is this is going to happen. Uh, and then he wins the Silver Slugger Award, the first uh, JC player to uh, to win that award. Um, he becomes the first Nevada native to be picked first in a major sports league draft. Um, mm. Obviously, him him being picked number one was important as a hook. Uh, you know, being a Nevada native, the first. Nevada native pick number one. Well, that, that's a that's a neat hook, also, and it adds to the story that that really makes it a Las Vegas story. Um, the fact that he that that his father and his grandfather were iron workers who helped lay the foundation of nearly every property on the Strip. Well, I mean, that's just a fantastic Las Vegas angle that solidifies that story. But but as you read, there are so many other interesting aspects from other players and coaches on the team that have ties to Las Vegas. That makes it a really neat Vegas and Nevada story. Uh, but even when he got picked first, there was that little drama of, okay, fine and dandy. Well, guess what? Now you need to sign. So that was in doubt. I mean, he did not sign until 22 seconds left of the deadline. So that was a little nerve-wracking. I'm sure it was more nerve-wracking for him than and his family than anything. But, uh, you know, if he doesn't sign, well, then, there's a hook that the, that the book misses. So uh, all these things were happening that told me that I was on the right path and, and it was worthy of, of every second that I devoted to it. And, uh, and so I, it, was, it was very pleasing that, that that happened, obviously. The Sportscasters are here with Rob Mish. He's the author of the Sportscasters Book Club, Book of the Month, The Last Natural, Bryce Harper's Big Gamble in Sin City, and The Greatest Amateur Season Ever. Uh, Rob does a great job of uh, updating uh, players that you meet in the book on his Twitter. You can follow him at Rob Mish, M-I-E-C-H. Uh, let's kind of let's kind of finish out with this. You know, um, Harper kind of, well, I thought I'd be spending the whole season watching this kid because I thought he'd be in Syracuse all year. And, yeah. you know, I thought, oh, great. You know, he'll come to Buffalo three, four times. I'll get to watch him, get to see the, matru- right. you know, get to see the maturation process. And obviously that all changed. They called him up before he ever even came here once. And he wasn't exactly killing it in AAA, but he gets to the majors and it seems like, you know, that's where he was supposed to be. And he's had, you know, mixed results. You, you, We talked off the air about, a game he had where he had five strikeouts, and I kind of pointed out, you know, it's an interesting day to do that since Derek Jeter almost had his first uh, 0 for 7 that day too, which is, I guess, one way to kind of brush off a five strikeout day if Derek Jeter can have a day that bad, so can you know, so can a kid. Uh, well, but, and I believe I believe that day also uh, Teixeira. I, I might be mixing him up with Swisher, but I think Teixeira was. He struck out three times, and so he was kind of headed for a golden sombrero. So to see two major leaguers uh, record golden sombreros in the same game, I was ready to do some research and see if that had ever been done before. Right. But uh, to 
Sherry didn't do it, and then of course Bryce struck out another time. So there's a platinum sombrero. But you know, he go back to 2010. He he learned how to deal with failure, and I think he's applying that probably right now. But I don't think that's your question. Go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt. You. Oh no, that's okay. I was just gonna say, you know, we're he's he's ahead of schedule, obviously. Um, being there where maybe some people thought he would be not there all season long. So I guess what I'm asking you is what are your expectations for Bryce Harper as he finishes this year and moves on based on your experiences with him, who, you know, as you mentioned in the book, had a similar kind of really rough start at uh, the junior college level and then obviously went on to have the season he had. Right. Um you know, again, I got to go back to my expectations. I mean, I understand the question, but geez, what he expects of himself is, uh, you know, he, he could be voted on the All Star team. I think that's probably a long shot, but he he could make the All Star team, and that's not going to fluster him at all. Um, you know, he he's all about winning, but uh, you know, I I, I was kind of hoping that he would uh, make a run at Tony Conigliaro's. Uh, teenage record of uh, 24 home runs in the majors as a teenager, and that might have fallen off in the past week or 10 days or two weeks, but you know, they're in Colorado right now, and that's a great place for him to you know, Pick back up. find that stroke again, and I was in with a buddy yesterday, um, that's not a bad place to maybe hit your first 550-foot home run. <laughs> When he gets a hold of one, Stephen, it's going to be dynamic. You've seen a lot of, you've seen his homers. You know, obviously, a lot have gone to center field. Uh, he hit a line to the left, and um, when he gets a hold of one and takes it to right, oh my God, you're going to see a moonshot. I, I would still, I don't know what the odds are here in Vegas. I mean, I'm sure they're not on any big board, but uh, I would put money on him hitting the longest homer in the majors this season. I would imagine that that is coming. Um, but, you know, I think, I think that was probably the neatest thing for him to be called up unexpectedly. Yeah. He wasn't doing well in Syracuse and, you know, you know, more than probably a lot of people listening to this, how, how the weather was and how, how tough it was starting the season there. And my God, what was it? A, a rain out maybe every other day or something like that. It was no, no situation to get in a groove or to get your timing down. Um, and his stats were not glowing, and I think for him, that was probably the, one of the neatest things he'll experience is that it was an unexpected call-up, because you can envision any other scenario, and you know him hitting 400, 380, he's hit five homers in his first uh, week of AAA, say that happened. Well, then the expectation is there, and when the call comes, he's not surprised. But I think this caught him off guard. The, the big uh, the parent club had some injuries. They needed a left-handed power hitting bat, and look who we had in AAA. And uh, it was a pretty neat scenario. It was a pretty neat situation. Him playing his first game in LA with Vince Scully, uh, calling the calling the uh, balls and strikes. And I I just think that uh, you know I think he's going to put up good numbers. I think he's going to ride some waves and he'll ride some lulls. I don't know what his numbers will be. I'm not really into that, but I think the whole learning experience of this season is going to be the most invaluable thing to that guy. And uh, and I think next season, I mean, I look at this as kind of a launching pad. He's learning pitchers. He's learning new parks. He's learning the big league way of life. And 
I think next year and for years to come, you're going to see someone who is uh, really full of steam and putting up big numbers. All right. Uh, the book is called The Last Natural, Bryce Harper's Big Gamble in Sin City and the Greatest Amateur Season Ever. It's written by Rob Misch, our guest here. You can find him on Twitter at Rob, M-I-E-C-H. Uh, thanks for being a part of the Book Club Book of the Month, and thanks for doing this today. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Stephen. My honor. Thank you. All right, we got to thank Rob Mish for being on the program today. Also, got to thank Otto Bolden and Jeff Passan for making season two, episode twenty-five, a great show. Want to mention you can find us on Facebook, www.facebook.com/sportscasters. Please follow us on Twitter. We're at sports underscore casters. You also can email us, especially if you want a copy of the Last Natural at the sportscasters at gmail.com. Our blog is thesportscasters.blogspot.com or thesportscasters.tumblr.com. And for all this information and more, you can go to our website, www.sports-casters.com. Don't forget about our other podcast at footballnation.com, www.footballnation.com. This week, we have Jay Clemens, the lead fantasy writer for Bleacher Report. And if you want to look back, you can listen to our podcast from last week, which had Michael Fabiano, the lead fantasy writer for NFL.com and the NFL Network, both Fantastic interviews if you're a fan of fantasy football. Now, last thing to do on this show today before we take a week off for the 4th of July, and that is pick four. Last week, we broke format a little bit and picked the seven biggest NHL awards. I thought it'd be cool. I still think it was cool, but we ended up going 13 out of 14 combined. I went 7 of 7, and Don went 6 of 7. We had different Calder Trophy winners. That was the only difference. I picked uh, Landis Gog to win the Calder Trophy, and Don picked Nugent Hopkins. Landis Gog won. That's the difference. A 7-0 and week puts me at 60 and 45, and a 6-1 and week puts Don at 54 and 53. So it was a good week for us, certainly, to make up a lot of ground. Yeah, you talked about how it might have been a little bit too easy, but... I still we want checked, to do it like this next year. Right, we checked your blog from last year, and I was three and four. Yeah, you had a below average week, I suppose. So I mean, it just happened; it was an easier year to pick it, I guess, or we just were on the money with it. And you know, I looked. Wyshynski, I think, was five and two, and I think Merrick was six and one. So it's not like every guy who picked these went seven and zero. Oh. I, right. I think I got a little bit lucky, especially because. I think the two hardest ones to pick were rookie of the year and coach of the year, and I just got lucky with those. So and Lady Bing is a weird one. We just happen to agree on it, and... right? So whatever. Um, and you know, Brian Campbell's the first defenseman to win that award in like fifty some years. So yeah, so I mean, maybe we were. Who knows? Uh, but this week we're going to get back to format and Don kick us off with the game of the week. All right, the game of the week this week is Friday night at ten ten Eastern. Uh, that's the Mets at the Dodgers. Look, mid-season baseball games usually don't make for the game of the week, but the Mets and Dodgers both have and nice what were seasons. We gonna, where were we going to go? I mean, right. I would have loved to do the final in the Euro, but we don't know who's in the final. Right. Could have done one of the semifinals for the Euro, but... But uh, this features Ari Dickey, who is a hot story this year, and I only have his last name, and I don't know his first name. Harang from the Dodgers. As hot as Ari Dickey's been, give me the Dodgers. They're at home. I think that they're the better team, and uh, 
Usually baseball, you just pick the pitcher, but I guess I'm going to go against that this week. Yeah, I'm going to go with that and pick Dickey. He finally lost a game and gave up some runs. Yeah. Or, you know what? I don't think he lost the game, actually. he did. No decision. Yeah, it was a no decision. But um, he did give up some runs to the Yankees. But I'm going to stick with Dickey. Uh, Passon, when we talked to him, was in Chicago where the Mets were going to come after their Yankee series to talk to Dickey and should have a really good piece up on Thursday of this week about Dickey. So check that out. But I'm going to go with Dickey and the Mets. Take them in the game of the week. All right, getting back to our pitcher of the week this week, too. Uh, I'm going to take Roy Oswald, who is 1-0 right now with a 1.35 ERA. He plays the Lowly Tigers on Wednesday at 8 p.m. And he's going against Fister, who, despite his nice 2.72 ERA, is just 1-4. A lot of people still think the Tigers can win that division. They got a long long way back. Yeah, Lowly is uh, that's an opinion from like the 80s. <laughs> They're better than uh, that. My winning pitcher of the week this week is Matt Harrison, who's 10-3 and three with a 3.24 ERA for the Texas Rangers. Rangers yep. uh, they're playing the Oakland Athletics and A.J. Griffin, who's 0-0 with a 3.0 ERA. I think he's only had one start. Game's Friday, June 29th at 8.05 uh, p.m. I'm going to go with uh, Harrison and the Rangers there. Again, uh, not many games to pick this week, so they're all baseball. My host choice happens to be that game, and I went the same way you did, picking Texas to win it. Uh, I need wins in this thing. so I need wins, too. So I'm going to take Novak Djokovic in his second-round Wimbledon matchup. He plays an American, Ryan Harrison. If Ryan Harrison beats Djokovic in the second round of Wimbledon, I might shit myself. <laughs> so I better win that one. Yeah, I was looking at tennis. I thought it was all going on today. Maybe I could have picked it after they finished though i suppose um my bold prediction this week maybe not the boldest of predictions but these things are always hard to predict i'm going to predict that ryan sutter ends up in detroit we talked earlier a little bit about it detroit has a ton of money they're losing nick lidstrom to retirement and they need to fill that gap somehow uh sutter isn't quite the player nick lidstrom is but who is right me so the best they could do to fill that gap is to get the maybe second hottest name in free agency in Ryan Sutter, and that's where I think he ends up. All right, my bold prediction this week uh, centers around the NBA draft, which is Thursday. Uh, probably the one player in the draft that people in the mock drafts I looked at are in the biggest disagreement about is Jared Sullinger, power forward from Ohio State. Now, it was announced the other day that he's not going to be invited to the green room, that doesn't mean he won't be a top 10 pick. I've seen him as far as 7, seen him as low as 21. That's why they decided to not invite him in case he ends up having to sit there until 21. How many players do they invite in the NBA? You know, About around 10. 10. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to say Jared doesn't get picked in the lottery. So that means he'll be after the 14th pick. I'm going to go with the slide. Oh, okay. As opposed to saying he's going to – he stayed in college an extra year. He probably definitely would have been a lottery pick this year. Uh, as often can happen, you stay another year. People poke holes in your game a little bit. Right. And he is the one guy who, like I said, there's the biggest disagreement out there. It seems like the unibrow, Anthony <laughs> Davis, uh, will be the first pick. Uh, his teammate, Gilchrist, could also be picked second or third. Um, but the NBA draft is Thursday, and I'm going to say Jared Sollinger is going to fall out of the lottery, which is the top 14 picks. That's my bold prediction. Thanks again to Atto Bolden, Rob Mish, and Jeff Passan. Next week, enjoy the 4th of July. We're going to, uh, as well, we'll be back on July 10th with Jack McCullen. Dom, you can cue the hip.
All right.